have to pass the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. What? If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor. What difference at this point does it make? If you're looking to make sense out of what's going on in the world today, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, Annie, the Radio Chickie Bellis, and featuring Curtis C.S. Bennett and the most interesting guests that you'll find anywhere on Internet radio. And you can join the show and let your voice be heard by dialing 917 889 3675. So sit back, relax, and remember Southern Sense is common sense. Welcome back to another adventure here on Southern Sense. You're listening live on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, up on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, Facebook, iHeart, all the heck with it. Just go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. Also remind you that we are now also up on Substack. So you can find us at Southern Sense on, at Substack. I'm your hostess with the least mostest, the Radio Chickadee, Annie, along with my courageous co-host, Curtis C.S. Bennett. Good mm-hmm. afternoon, Curtis. We're back. Oh, yeah, and it's, it's good to, to be on the show, and it's not a thunderstorm going on in the background. It's been raining ever since I got back, and um, the last two days it's been pretty dry. What about up there? Uh, on and off, on and off. We've got a little tail end earlier today. We've got more coming in this afternoon. But it is what it oh, is. Oh, God. True. <laughs> so it just have to enjoy. Absolutely, absolutely. want to welcome everyone that's watching us and listening to us here on Blog Talk Radio, YouTube, and Facebook. The chats are open over there, as well as on our homepage, so you can see us or listen to us, whichever you prefer, and still participate in the chats over there at southern-sense.com. Just put a dash in the middle between southern and sense.com. Anyway, we got ourselves a rockin' and rolling show. Now, last week, it was a week to remember or forget. <laughs> where, Challenging. Uh, we had one guest, uh, two guests didn't show up, and one came in late. And as it turned out, uh, Mark, Mark Tapscott, about half an hour before going on air with, uh, I went on air with you, he got a message that he had to go to mandatory training. 
So he shot me a really quick email I didn't get until after the show, unfortunately. Uh, but he offered to come on today, and I said, listen, you never know what happens on real radio, so I'll keep you in the wings. But he will be with us next week. So it was something that was unforeseen. Uh, Jacqueline Toberoff, the author of Supermoms Activate, um, will be with us today. You know, there was like a big whoops on her end, so <laughs> we'll forgive her. And uh, Miriam Grossman, who did come on for about 15 minutes uh, last week, is going to do a full hour with us, Curtis, today. So that's going to be okay. a lot of fun. And plus, that's we also have great. coming back. Yeah, coming back onto the show. Also, we have Robert Bork Jr. And oh boy, is there a lot to talk about? A lot to do. Holy moly, I'm out of breath already. <laughs> I'm not too far behind you, but um, it just seems like um, <clears throat> this um, get Trump. Theme still has an um, lost theme, so just hold on to your seatbelt because I, I don't think this is over yet. Yeah, they now have set a trial date for him on one of these uh, cases for May twentieth of next year. How odd it is! It's going to be six months before the election. Do you think they're trying to do election tampering by? deciding that that is the time to schedule the the, the charge, I mean, the trial? Hmm. Oh, it's just a coincidence. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'll tell you a lot about coinkydinks. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> anyway, um, we do have a lot to talk about. And anyone that listens to the show know that we start off each and every show with a dedication to a fallen hero. And if you were looking for the new format uh, on the show that I have been promising, it still is a work in progress, and all the technical difficulties between Blog Talk Radio and our show uh, has also, uh, honestly, I will say this honestly, my mixer board went bad. And it just went completely kaflooey last week, and nothing worked. I did every sort of diagnostic and stood on my head doing it until I finally pulled out an old mixer board, hooked it up, and everything's working perfectly fine. But we will get a new format up, hopefully very, very soon. That said, those that listen to the show know that we start off each and every show with a dedication to a fallen hero. And unfortunately uh, for this individual, there was not a lot of information, so I had to patch things together from various sources and could not find very many photographs of this officer. So I hope I do do him justice, because it seems the media seems to have forgotten him in a great way. So today's dedication is going to go out to Corporal Sean Kevin Kelly of the Denham Springs Police Department out of Louisiana. His end of watch was Friday, June 2nd, of this year. And this is by David Gray from LivingstonParishNews.com. And he writes, New details have emerged to shed more light on the events surrounding the shooting of Denham Springs Police Officer Corporal Sean Kelly, a 26-year law enforcement veteran currently serving in the Denham Springs Police Department, remains hospitalized in critical condition after being shot while responding to a disturbance at the Spring Park Park Plaza. 
Authorities have said 30-year-old Justin Roberts of Denham Springs shot Kelly multiple times before fleeing the scene. A Livingston Parish Sheriff's deputy later shot Roberts, who died hours from the injury. Since the incident involved both the Livingston Parish Sheriff's Office and the Denham Springs Police Department, the East Baton Rouge Sheriff's Office was asked to lead the investigation, which they revealed in a report. The report states, at 3.45 p.m. on May 10, roughly 45 minutes before the shooting, and goes through the shooter's apprehension around 4.30 p.m., in addition to providing new information about the two shootings, the report also details other incidents pointing to Roberts, although he is not mentioned by name in those incidents. According to the report, homicide detectives conducted interviews, quote, with all the involved officers and deputies, unquote. That information, detectives said, was consistent with the video surveillance footage and the evidence at both crime scenes. In conclusion, the EBRSO report supported the actions taken by local authorities. EBRSO's review supports the actions. The East Baton Rouge Sheriff's Office said all investigative materials will be released to both agencies as well as the Livingston Parish District Attorney's Office for any further review or release of information. At 3.45 on Thursday, May 11, a Livingston Parish resident was driving in the parking lot of 2358 South Range Avenue when a man driving a gold Jeep Cherokee followed her from the Petco parking lot to her Dunham Springs residence. During the incident, the male driver cut her off several times and brake checked her while driving. The male driver followed the female as she pulled into her driveway but backed out of the driveway and left the area when she pulled into the garage and closed the door. At 4.03 p.m. on Thursday, May 11th, DSPD officers responded to a disturbance at 240 Range 12 Boulevard after receiving a call of a male yelling and threatening a patron walking past him near the sports clips haircuts. The suspect in this incident was described as a male black who drove a gold Jeep Cherokee, the descriptions consistent with the first incident. The suspect was last seen headed toward Bass Pro Boulevard. At 4.15, DSPD officers responded to 2358 South Range Avenue, the area at 4.15 p.m. the incident, after receiving a call of a male and female arguing in the parking lot of the Petco. The male suspect began shouting at the woman, who later stated she did not know the suspect. The woman reportedly responded to the suspect by threatening to call the police. The woman then got in her vehicle, and the male suspect began following her through the parking lot while in his vehicle, a gold Jeep Cherokee, matching the vehicle in two other incidents. At 4.22 p.m., Corporal Sean Kelly and a trainee arrived on scene in reference to the 911 call. After exiting their vehicle, the male subject, later identified as Roberts, fired upon them through his driver's side window while still seated in his vehicle, the report says. Kelly was struck multiple times. 
Roberts then drove across the parking lot in the direction of the Raising Cane's restaurant. But within seconds, he turned his vehicle around and drove back toward the DSPD offices, where he fired upon them once again, according to the report. The DSPD trainee returned fire before Roberts fled the scene. Roberts was not injured, but his vehicle was struck. At 4.29 p.m., a uniformed Livingston Parish Sheriff's deputy was traveling northbound on the 400 block of Eugene Street in Dedham Springs when he spotted the suspect vehicle stopped in the roadway. Roberts was outside of the vehicle, armed with a rifle that he was pointing at the deputy. The LPSO deputy quickly stopped and exited his vehicle and fired several times upon Roberts, striking him in the head and causing him to be incapacitated. The findings end by saying Roberts was transported to an area hospital where he later died from his injuries. This is followed up by Holly Matkin of the Police Tribune. And she writes, Denham Springs Police Department, Corporal Sean Kelly, died in the line of duty on June 2nd, more than three weeks after he was shot multiple times while responding to a disturbance outside a local shopping center. The attack occurred at the Spring Park Plaza on South Range Avenue at approximately 4.20 p.m. on May 11th, WWL reported. The shopping center, which is among the busiest sections of town, includes a Home Depot and a Petco, as well as many other stores, according to the advocate. Chief Rodney Walker said, Officers responded to the parking lot of the retail center after receiving reports of a dispute between a man and a woman outside the Petco. Investigators later said the two two individuals who were arguing did not know one another. According to DSPD Sergeant Scott Sterling, Corporal Kelly was assigned to the traffic unit and was not expected to respond to the call. But he offered to help out when he noticed the officers responsible for handling the situation were tied up with another. When he and another officer arrived at the scene, a male suspect opened fire on them, according to Chief Walker. We returned fire and one of my guys was hit, the police chief said. He confirmed Corporal Kelly was struck multiple times during the attack. A video posted to social media showed three officers rushing to Corporal Kelly's aid in the wake of the shooting. They performed chest compressions and worked frantically to save save his life before he was rushed to a local hospital. The gunman fired off more rounds after shooting Corporal Kelly, then sped away northbound on Range Avenue. As the suspect reached U.S. Highway 190, he was intercepted by Livingston Parish Sheriff's Office deputies. Livingston Parish Sheriff Jason Ard said the suspect came out of the vehicle with a gun, at which point he pointed at the deputies and fired at him. The gunman was wounded and subsequently transported to the hospital. He was later identified as 30-year-old Justin Roberts. The LPSO confirmed Roberts died from his wounds at the hospital later that night. 
Roberts was also allegedly involved in two other road rage incidents that occurred nearby just minutes prior to shooting Corporal Kelly. Corporal Kelly remained hospitalized in critical condition until his death on June 2nd. The DSPD said he died while surrounded by his family, friends, and members of the DSPD. Corporal Kelly dedicated 29 years of his life to law enforcement career, the last four of which he spent with the DSPD, according to the Officer Down Memorial page. He later began serving with the Louisiana Department of Corrections and various other state agencies in 1994 before earning his post-certification at the Louisiana State Police Training Academy in 1997. Sergeant Sterling said that the beloved corporal received multiple commendations for his generous ways and positive attitude during his years of service, according to the advocate. Corporal Kelly was also a field training officer and taser instructor. On May 11, 2023, evil and tragedy struck our community, and because of it, we will be forever changed, Chief Walker said in a statement to Livingston Parish News. He adds, Corporal Sean Kelly was a great public service, a great father, grandfather, husband, and just a great human being. He was one of the finest men I have ever known. The Dan Springs and Livingston Parish communities have truly lost one of its finest. On behalf of Corporal Kelly's family and his DSPD family, we thank you for your continued love, support, and prayers during this difficult and tragic time. Sheriff Ard said he will remember Corporal Kelly as a hero. He said he died doing what he loved to do, serving and protecting his community. In addition to that, he brought our Livingston Parish community together, reminding us that we are in this together, that we need to continue working together, and that Together, we can do great things, the sheriff said. My heart is full for Corporal Kelly's family, for our DSPD partners, for those who knew and loved Sean, for all the Livingston Parish. We will continue to do what is needed to support Sean's family and his DSPD family. Corporal Kelly leaves behind his wife, as well as his children and grandchildren. Our thoughts and prayers are with the family of Dunham Springs Police Department, Corporal Sean Kelly. Both blood and blue. Thank you for your service. She, she ends. Corporal Sean Kelly, your life mattered. Corporal Kelly, stand down. Your end of tour. We will take it from here. Today's show is dedicated to Corporal Kelly is dedicated to all the brave men and women that serve as first responders, be they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency services. We also dedicate this show to the brave men and women who have built this nation, serving and protecting. From the formation of this nation through today and into our hopeful future, may God bless each and every one. We dedicate to them this song, by Tiffany, Soul of the Nation. Mm-hmm. 
back. You're here listening to Sense Sense live on Block Talk Radio, SHR Media, Lone Star, Daily News, iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, Facebook, all the heck with it. Half a dozen other places that you'll find us. I'm your hostess with the least most radio, Chickadee, Annie, and I'm looking for something on my computer, and I am not finding it. Holy cow, Annie. Well, Curtis is looking to call our guest in, uh, and hopefully he'll be with us very shortly. As I said, we've got ourselves a great lineup and a lot to talk about, and oh boy, are things heating up out there. It, this world is getting crazier and crazier and crazier by the second. But you know what the media is talking about? Finally, the media is starting to notice something's really wrong with Uncle Joe. Uh, He's not getting onto the presidential plane in the front where the media catches him. He's now using the shorter stairs, and he's walking around without socks. And that's what the media is talking about, not more important things. Anyway, we all know creepy Uncle Joe is losing his bonkers. (laughs) So they finally figured that one out. That said, in my Guest is probably going, oh, my God, what am I in for now? But as always, he knows he's going to have fun talking to us. Let's welcome back Robert Bork, Jr. Good afternoon, Robert. How are you today? I know what I'm in for. You're absolutely right. No, it's going to be fun. Uh, Thank you for having me on. (laughs) Oh, it is our pleasure. You know, I kind of like don't even know where to start because, you know, in past campaigns and presidential administrations, you know, you got bombarded with stuff. Oh, perfect example is Tricky Dicky Nixon. You know, I grew up in high school listening to Watergate and everything and Deep Throat. You thought nothing could ever get worse scandalized than uh, Richard Nixon. But now we come through here all the way up to President Biden. And oh my God, have we just opened up the entire insane asylum and dumped him into the White House? It does seem to get worse. Never better, does it, you know? Uh, (laughs) Richard Nixon was, as they say, a simple burglary gone wrong. And uh, this this guy uh, is, uh, besides being uh, non-compass mentis, is, uh, you know, looks more and more like some money changed hands with, uh, you know, with foreigners. So uh, at a time when, uh, you know, he was uh, maybe – Selling his uh, his influence, or his son was selling his influence for him. Anyway, I think that I'm not sure whether, whether you you know you, which which president you think did worse, but both are pretty darn bad. <laughs> you know, uh, when uh, Biden was running for the presidency, uh, someone asked me my opinion of him and of you know the first lady to be, and I said she's committing spousal abuse. This is elder abuse. And I saw it back before he even got the nomination. Why didn't anyone else? I don't have a medical degree, but I do know the signs of dementia. Uh, I've lived through you know, several individuals in the family that have suffered from it, but never seen a case as bad as we're seeing with uh, President Biden. Well, look, it's, uh, you know, it's sad. And, and, and one should have some sympathy uh, I have, uh, like you, known uh, family members uh, who uh, or, or in-laws and who have, uh, you know, suffered through this, and it's it's a horrible, horrible uh, thing to watch. Uh, the, the difference is, of course, is that uh, this man is president of uh, the United States, leader of the free world, and he has no business being where he is right now. Um, setting aside all of his policy problems, which drive me up a wall. 
it is a it is a, a horrible horrible mistake that uh, allowed him to become president. Yeah, actually, yeah, and now that leads into a lot of things in that you are trying to deal with. Um, Jim Jordan was questioning Lena Khan um, in the House Judiciary Committee uh, dealing with the FTC. Uh, and the FTC is trying to do a bunch of uh, uh, corporation breakups, like with Twitter and Facebook and other, uh, Amazon. Uh, what's going on here? I, I am also <laughs> listening to some Republicans saying at the same time, well, it's time we break up this big buddy business and give the little guy a chance. And I'm scratching well, my head going, say what? Yeah. No, it, you, you've, you've touched on a number of uh, issues. Uh, first of all, uh, we've had over the last 43 years uh, a very good uh, antitrust or competition policy in place called the Consumer Welfare Standard. And uh, the reason I'm advocating for that and, and involved in this debate these days is because my father wrote the book uh, that put forward this idea uh, that antitrust law, competition law, ought to be based on what's good for consumers, not what's good for competitors, that doesn't protect um, uh, inefficient smaller competitors against more efficient competitors. Uh, the big isn't always bad. Uh, in fact, big can be good. But, uh, but So this has been in place since the Supreme Court adopted this as a, a rationale for understanding antitrust litigation antitrust enforcement in 1979. Uh, since uh, the Biden administration came in and put people like Lena Khan and Tim Wu and John, uh, Jonathan Cantor in positions of authority over this kind of, of over antitrust and competition policy, they've decided they want to change everything to, from putting the consumer at the center of, of antitrust uh, enforcement to uh, adding things like equity and labor and uh, other sort of uh, things that don't have, that aren't fact-based, that are ideologically based, that are emotionally based. We don't like big anymore. I mean, we don't, we don't like big companies anymore who provide great services and invent new things and innovate and create jobs. Now we, we think any, any company this is not me, we, we the government, thinks that uh, any company that, that wants to merge or acquire something is probably uh, wrong and perhaps even corrupt. And so they go after them. Uh, the interesting thing about all of this is that in nearly all of the cases brought by this administration from the FTC or the DOJ uh, against uh, companies that want to merge, uh, they've lost almost all of them. Uh, and that's because the courts still adhere to this consumer welfare standard uh, that has been in place now, as I say, for 43 years. And when they bring these crazy theories and, and, and bad cases before the courts, the courts say, no, I'm sorry, that's wrong. Uh, that could change. Uh, you know, Biden is pushing uh, judges, uh, liberal judges, uh, and they're getting you know, nominated and confirmed by the Democrat-controlled Senate, um, and, uh, and they keep pushing these policies. There's a certain view 
uh, out there that, uh, you know, by Lena Khan and others, that the more cases we bring, even if we lose them, we are shelling the beach, as, you, as it were. We're, we're. we're making progress. We're fomenting revolution in an economic and antitrust policy. Uh, I don't think that's right. I don't think they're actually accomplishing that. But you never know. They, want, they could get one of these, you know, things to stick, and uh, then, then we're really in trouble. Well, it's funny because the Democrats always prided themselves as being for the little guy, not for big business. Somehow or other, they flipped that. So they'll protect big business if they get money in their coffers for their political ambitions. But heaven forbid you don't tow their ESG and wokeism uh, platforms, then we're coming at you. Well, you know, you're absolutely right. Uh, although I've got to say, more and more corporations are uh, towing their ESG uh, positions. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's almost impossible these days to find a company that's not doing that. Uh, but that's, uh, you know, oddly enough, Lena Khan and, and, and Jonathan Cantor of the DOJ uh, have both said that ESG won't get you off the hook. If we don't like, if we think your merger is bad or your acquisition is bad or you're doing something that violates antitrust laws, we interpret it, telling us, hey, but we're, 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 we're good uh, ESG citizens, which again stands for environmental social governance uh, citizens, that won't get you off the hook. Um, I'm not sure where that's going to go, but you know, as you, uh, you obviously understand, ESG is a very dangerous uh, situation a uh, very dangerous sort of policy. Uh, it, it's actually more of a religion now than even a policy, and it's, it's infecting government and corporations uh, around the world, uh, which, is, which is one of the reasons why um, I've advocated for and the state, a lot of Republican state attorneys general are advocating for antitrust prosecutions uh, of companies uh, and the, uh, the, uh, the promoters of ESG because it really looks like when you read what they say about themselves that they are in violation of the Section 1 of the Sherman Act. That's the original Antitrust Act from 1890. Uh, <clears throat> and it says you shall not restrain trade. Well, a lot, of this, a lot of this stuff that they're pushing in the ESG now is designed to restrain trade. We can't you know, trade with uh, energy companies. Uh, energy companies can't get financing. Uh, they have to, not just energy companies, but other companies as well, are all sort of under the yoke of meeting uh, scores, or trying to you know, get scores from these ESG NGOs, non-governmental you know, operations. Um, and if they don't, they, they can lose market, they can lose uh, customers, they can lose financing, and uh, that looks very much like a restraint of trade under uh, the antitrust laws. So I'm glad that the state AGs, Republican state AGs, are bringing, uh, are investigating and are likely to bring some cases. Uh, oddly enough, this administration won't ever bring any antitrust cases for, for you know, for saying that uh, the ESG is an antitrust violation because they're in bed with those, uh, that whole, you know, ideology. But, um, uh, well, I, I, now you've got me all wound up. <laughs> Where to go next? Where do you want to go next? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny because I worked for American Express back in the 1980s at the time. Um, and back then, uh, American Express would voluntarily ask if you wanted to donate to certain organizations. And uh -huh. when I looked down the list, 
of companies or or uh, charities, I should say, charities that they put there for donations, um, I found out of a list of about 10 or 12, maybe one or two I was willing to donate to. One was, I think, St. Jude's Hospital. But they had PETA up there. They had all these left-wing charities up there. And I managed to find one or two. And they were doing it promoting the ESG back then because they were looking to see who you were donating to. Uh, but now it's not undercover. It's wide out in the open. So now if I were to go to my bank, because I do a conservative radio show here, and I speak to someone as infamous as you, Robert, how dare I? <laughs> I, may not, yes. I may not get a loan or be able to open a bank account because I am who I am. But if I Where was a trans... Around? But I was part of the LBGTQ XYZ community and kissing the ground that Peter walks on and any other wacko left pro- progressive charity. I'm fine. I'm gold. I'm good people. I'm a, I, I, we'll give you any credit card you want. It's an opposite. They're penalizing us for being who we are. Well, you're absolutely right about that. And, you know, you've seen that uh, in the in the. Uh, censorship of conservative speech on some of these platforms, um, which is I, I, I am absolutely opposed to, although I'm also absolutely opposed to using antitrust uh, as, a, as a weapon in that fight. That, that, that fight should be handled through uh, other means uh, by, uh, you know, amending uh, Section 230, which is the law that applies, uh, you know, to the, the uh, speech rights of uh, 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 of, uh, of uh, online platforms, um, and, and there are other things to be done other than break up companies for that stuff. Um, uh, you know, you're absolutely right. Uh, I actually was talking to the general counsel of a company not long ago who was telling me you had mentioned, you know, uh, what you your beliefs uh, and 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 if, or your people you do business with, and that could that could cost you as you go to get a loan or. Uh, or get a credit card or something with certain banks. Uh, in his case, he was telling me that uh, some of the, they get scored by these ESG groups based on who they make political contributions to. So if, if his company, which happens to be a conservative company, uh, you know, it's publicly traded, but the management is conservative uh, and the board is conservative, if they give money to a Republican, uh, you know, as, as, as companies do for so that they can influence politics. But if they give money to uh, a Republican, uh, they lose points and they get their score lowered, which then makes them less attractive from, you know, by financial institutions uh, to receive uh, loans or whatever. You know, they, they, you get put on the, uh, on the list, you know, sort of like a blacklist. And uh, uh, that's just, it's all of this has gone way too far. I mean, I understand the original idea was to try to, you know, help encourage companies and encourage all of us to do more to help the environment and all that. But now it's become a, uh, a system of control uh, and pushing everybody to the left. Very bad. Exactly. Robert. Exactly. Robert. Right, Curtis. Yeah, we know ESG is very, very dangerous as a policy and will stifle you know, businesses and um, mm-hmm. impact our freedom of speech. But even if we fought this battle in court, as we have other battles, it seems like it, even when we get a favorable ruling, 
prone. Um, the president always seems to come up with some executive order to usurp, you know, the results or the findings of the court, and it leaves you scratching your head. I mean, it used to be a day when the Supreme Court would have the final say on things, but with these executive orders, you just, I mean, it's like, why even bother? Well, you have to bother. You have to fight back. That's why, you know, and, and, and just remember, an executive order isn't law. <clears throat> it's, it, it can be repealed or canceled by the next president, uh, whether that's Donald Trump or, uh, you know, DeSantis or another Republican. They can come in and clean all that stuff up with a stroke of a pen, uh, and that's good. Uh, and they can then keep appointing, uh, you know, conservative originalist judges. Uh, they can, uh, you know, we can hopefully win the Senate in uh, in uh, the next cycle and have a, a conservative, generally conservative uh, government that can uh, try to put some of this back. Uh, you got to remember, though, that uh, even when you're in the minority, like we are in this FTC, we, when, just when Biden came in, there were, he appointed Lena Khan and made her the chair, and the, there were two uh, other Democrats, and there were two Republicans on the FTC. Both Republicans quit uh, in, a, in short order, leaving just three Democrats. But now they've, they've, uh, Biden has nominated two Republicans. He's obliged to nominate Republicans. Uh, they were picked by Mitch McConnell, uh, and they're good. I know them. And, uh, and, and, and maybe someday one of them will be the, the new chair. But in the meantime, they're going to write lots of really good dissents over what the FTC is doing, which will help courts you know, guide courts in making decisions in some of these cases that the FTC has brought. Um, it's like Scalia. He spent years in the wilderness writing dissents when he was on a more liberal court. And then, uh, you know, unfortunately he passed away. But now you have a, a majority uh, of conservative justices, uh, and, and, and much of what they say and do uh, has underneath it uh, Scalia's ideas and even my father's ideas. Uh, driving the uh, their thinking and their and their opinions, so uh, I'm I'm usually the the guy who says it's hopeless, but in this case I'm not sure that it is. Uh, I, I can be very negative sometimes about the future, but I think I think that's. But this is why you have to keep you know slugging away even when you're in the minority and when you have a president like Joe Biden writing orders, executive orders. Sooner or later, it all comes around. I mean, who would have thought? Uh, 50 years ago or you know, like 25 years ago or my father was uh, even before he was nominated who would have thought that there would be a 6-3 majority on the Supreme Court of Conservatives who would have thought that affirmative action would have been overturned or Roe v. Wade would have been overturned uh, you know it makes one uh, think that there is hope for a reversal but there's also so much other rot in this culture that it's, it's not going to be easy it's going to be a hard battle well, you know, when they overturned affirmative action and Roe v. Wade, I did a little brief background because everyone says Supreme Court is the supreme law of the land. But the Supreme Court has overturned itself on many occasions. So simply because the Supreme Court rules on XYZ today, say 5, 10, 15, even 50 or 75 years down the road, another case may be brought before them and they may say that original ruling was wrong. This is the proper way to interpret it.
Well, I suppose that's true. I suppose that's true, which is yet another, you know, and I, I wish we could all just sort of now sort of sit back and, and rest on our laurels and say, well, we got it. You know, we, we did those things. We reversed those horrible decisions. And, and there were other horrible decisions, you know, a century ago that were reversed um, uh, that, uh, you know, were, I mean, you know, uh, those decisions, uh, you know, separate but equal and, and, and uh, some of the uh, other uh, important cases of the Supreme Court overturned and they needed to be overturned. Um, <clears throat> but you can't, we just can't give up and say, well, I guess we, it'll, they'll come back. We have to make such a strong case that it'll be very difficult for them to come back and we have to keep working on the culture to, uh, to hopefully someday uh, you know, convince people that, uh, that uh, you know, race has no place in policymaking and that uh, you know, life is more important than, uh, than uh, death. And 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 in in reproductive rights. Well, my angle is more like um, the damage they can do in between. You know, these um, decisions, Um, like prohibition, took ten years before it was reversed. But the thing is, ten years is a long time for the wrong people to do a lot of damage. And um, Lord knows if they ever get in position where they can. Um, load the court up with a bunch of liberals, you know, have it 15 or, you know, <laughs> six or something like that. I don't know. Yeah. Well, uh, a lot of things can go wrong. Uh, we may never things... get a second chance. <laughs> well, you never know. Uh, I, I just, I got to, you got to fight the battles that are in front of you. And, uh, and, and uh, we have, uh, you know, people spent, 40 years trying to, uh, 50 years trying to overturn Roe v. Wade, and they finally were able to do it. So, uh, and, you know, and the thing, of course, is, that, and, the, and the right does a horrible job of explaining this. Nobody, uh, nobody uh, outlawed abortion. What they did was they sent it back to the states. And if the states, the people, the democratically elected representatives, the people in the states want to pass laws in their state to allow abortion at some time or under certain conditions, they can do that. But that the point I think uh, is that that people need to decide. That democracy needs not not nine unelected uh, men and women in Washington. They don't get to be kings and queens. It, it happens to be uh, this is the kind of matter that our you know our our polity needs to decide. And um, and, and now they will. But there'll be a lot of uh, teeth gnashing and that sort of thing before. <laughs> gets done and a lot of lies will be told on both sides um but you know it's it's always going to be it's always going to be a slog i guess you know everybody we all want it to just sort of be easy but it's not going to be easy absolutely um i just want our listeners to know if they hear rumbling in the background it's coming from me because i live just a few miles away from the marine corps air station And, folks, when you read about them in the news being deployed, I'm living in the heart of it. And I've got a neighbor across the street probably is on one of those planes. I've got the C-135s, the F-16s, and the F-35s. And they had changed the runways because they're making a repair. So where I wasn't over the what they call the ACUs, the flight pattern, I am now part of it. So once in a while, uh, I may be muffling my microphone, 
but you know, say a prayer for those men and women heading over. Our president sending them to the Middle East, so please say a prayer for them. Just that's a little aside for people to know. Well, I don't hear it, so I'm, I, I don't know that your listeners do either. But in any event, uh, prayers definitely. <laughs> yes, absolutely. You know, um, the the administration is like doing a double down on. Uh, the antitrust. Your your dad wrote a great book, which you republished for him. The antitrust uh, paradox. Your father, father Robert Bork, wrote, um, and people can still get it up on Amazon. Uh, and <laughs> there we go, a legacy for you. Uh, but it, mm. it's amazing how we're finding now, as I was mentioning earlier, that some Republicans are jumping ship and joining the antitrust revival. Um, there was a piece written in the American Conservative that argues for the right to d- rediscover, as she writes, our true tradition of using antitrust law to stand up to powerful concentrations of market power. Now, now how can you claim to be a conservative, a Republican, which is a free market capitalist, and still support antitrust laws? I don't understand what's happening to the Republican Party. Well, hang on a second. I support antitrust laws. What I don't support is the the abuse of them by left-wing ideologues who want to weaponize antitrust to further regulate and control business activity in corporations um, to the point where the government has the ultimate control over over the capitalist system, over the markets. I'm absolutely opposed to that, but I do believe that we ought to be um, applying this conservative, this uh, consumer welfare standard in antitrust. If a, if a if the government agency, whether it's the DOJ or the FTC, can make a case that a company is uh, has, uh, is abusing its market power, is abusing its monopoly, or if it gets a monopoly uh, illegally, uh, then let's bring a case. But they haven't been able to do it. Um, they keep bringing bad cases, uh, you know, and, and most recently, uh, <clears throat> the FTC uh, has gone after Amazon for the fourth time since uh, the, uh, uh, in the last four years, um, uh, three years maybe, and, uh, you know, they, they're trying, they, want, they're, they want to bust them up. Uh, and frankly, uh, they, I don't think they'll be able to do it. I don't think they can prove that Amazon is a monopoly. They, what they need to do, if they, and I hate to give them advice, um, but they need to find an example, a, a market segment where Amazon is a monopoly. I don't think they can, but they, that's what they need to do, and then and make their case there. But they keep, you know, as I said in a piece I wrote in National Review, I mean, this Lena Khan is like Ahab, and, and Amazon is the white whale. Uh, and and uh, she wants she wants the the big victory. I think more for her own uh, legacy than anything else. Because she certainly doesn't have the law or economics on her side in the cases she's bringing. And but in fact, if the system remains, if if, if we continue to use the consumer welfare standard, we continue to base our antitrust enforcement actions based on evidence and facts and not ideology. Uh, you know, she will lose. Uh, but well, I, I knew by asking judge. that. I knew by asking that question that way, I put a burr in your saddle. I'm glad I did. <laughs> well, I just want to make clear. I mean, I'm not. Some people are, you know, think I'm opposed, or my father was opposed to any 
any antitrust uh, enforcement, and that's not true. Uh, and one of the things I can tell you is I'm, I'm absolutely in favor of antitrust enforcement uh, against some of these companies like uh, BlackRock and some of the and Saris, the some of these ESG operations for the kinds of uh, re- restraints of trade they are forcing on uh, corporations um, and, her, and the harm that they're causing. I think consumer they're causing consumer harm. And they're also, uh, in some cases, uh, violating their fiduciary responsibility when it comes to pension funds by investing, uh, you know, their their clients' money, their retirement money, into uh, into investments that don't make as much as they might if they invested them in something that didn't sort of conform to this ESG value system. Uh, and so that's why you know they don't want to invest in in, in uh, oil um, uh, and, and things like that because it's somehow, uh, it, you know, dirty or something. Uh, but that's not mm-hmm. their job. Their job is to say, where can I get the best return for that fireman, that policeman, that, you know, uh, county worker uh, who's in, whose funds I manage for their retirement because it's their money. It's not BlackRock's money. It's not State Street's money. It's not Vanguard's money. They, you know, and, and of course, one of the reasons they like this ESG stuff is because the fees are higher for them. So uh, it's it's a it's it's really a, a dangerous dangerous uh, uh, operate you know uh, ideology. This ESG thing it's it's become less uh, you know an economic uh, plan for making uh, the world better and more of a, and more an ideological almost religion now. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can look at the bank failures that we had this past year, and it was all through an ESG fund manager who didn't know what she was doing to begin with, had no training or nothing that qualified her to handle this. Uh, so the bank fails, and of course you find out other you banks are also doing ESG funding. Just yeah. yeah, yeah, right. And then you're looking at uh, you mentioned pension funds and. Uh, my friend, uh, the state attorney general here, Alan Wilson, uh, has pushed forward to having no investments in anything that has ESG to it. Uh, but I look at my own pension coming out of New York City, and I'm going, oh, crap. Are we going to see what happened under Mayor Lindsay, uh, where retirees will lose their pension and police officers will lose their job because of poor money management? Uh, if you remember, I, I'm sure you're about my age, in the 60s, what happened to New York City back then under Mayor Lindsay? Um, it, it is a scary thought when you look at past history and what they're pushing us into now. Are we looking for a huge economic downfall if we continue down this path of wokeism? Oh, I think so. Oh, I think so. I, 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 you know, and the funny thing is, at the same time, just like with uh, all the all the uh, ESG stuff we're doing, other companies like China aren't doing it. Uh, so we're basically uh, kneecapping ourselves and allowing our economic competitors to get away with it. Um, and I'll just say, speaking of New York, I don't know where you worked in, in New York, but a good friend of mine, uh, Gene Scalia, who's the justice's uh, oldest son, um, is former labor secretary and, and a lawyer in private practice. Now, he's uh, representing um, some uh, New York City municipal employees who are suing the city pension funds for violating their fiduciary duties 
by divesting energy companies. So, uh, you know, there is, there, there, is a, there is a price to be paid for this, uh, this left-wing ideological investing uh, program. And uh, I hope that they do. And I hope when he wins that case um, that uh, other uh, fund managers will get the message. That's not an antitrust yeah. case. That's, that's a fiduciary responsibility case. But, it is. It is because it's our money I and mean, we're trusting you to hold it and invest it reasonably and responsibly. And by not doing that, you fail to see to your clients' needs. You are now going against their desire and what is beneficial to them. Uh, I look at look look what happened with uh, Bud Light. What's happened with Target? Uh, what has happened to Disney? How much of a market share have they lost? It is it is amazing, and they still don't get the message. Well, you know, again, just to play both sides of the thing here, if if people want to invest their money in environmentally, you know, ESG friendly. Uh, investments, that's their right. But to have it done for them, or you know, without, you know, if they if they think their money is being invested to make the maximum return, you know, for their retirement, and they, and, then it's not. And and but if they want to invest in that stuff, they're certainly welcome to. There, you know, they can even designate. In some cases, you can designate uh, an ESG fund. Um, you may may find that your money doesn't go as far, but. Uh, uh, but you can do that. You just, you just, you should, these, these, these advisors just shouldn't do it uh, without um, permission. And if they don't have permission, then they are violating their fiduciary responsibility. Well, Robert, we're down to our last minute with you, and it's always a pleasure having you on. And I love sticking that little burr under your saddle once in a while to listen a wonderful, wonderful response. But people can find your book, The Antitrust Paradox, up on Amazon. They can find you at the Antitrust Education Project or the Bork Group. Links to that are on our show page, so people can click on it and get in touch with you and learn more about what you do and help bring a little sanity back to this world. A little would be nice, but yes. <laughs> Thank you again for having me on uh, a second time. It's been great fun. It's our pleasure, absolutely. And God bless, sir. Take care. God bless. All right, check Bye-bye. out Robert Bork at Antitrust Education Pro- Project and at the um, Bork Group. Links are on the show page. Curtis is attempting to get our next guest in on the line. Hopefully you'll have her very, very soon. Um, but I was talking about Target and uh, and uh, Bud Light uh, investors have downgraded the Target stock, and uh, it's declined by 1.85 billion dollars. And we're having seen the same thing with Bud Light, that their market share and everything is dropping like bricks. Uh, so there is a consequence for wokeism. Uh, the vast majority of Americans don't want it. And I had a laugh uh, going through Wally World. We call it Wally World's Walmart. Uh, and there's a stack of Bud Light. And it's not going down. No one is buying it. I do occasionally see someone with it, but not that often. And there is a consequence to their actions. But we do have our next guest in on the line. Let me bring her on. And I want to welcome to the show Jacqueline and I hope I'm not going to mispronounce your last name, Toberoff. She's the author. You are perfect. Did I do it correct? Oh, thank correct you. Correct. Uh, 
<laughs> I know I'm perfect. My mommy says so all the time. <laughs> uh, the book is Super Moms Activated, Mama Bears Awakened. Watch out. Man, uh, i got to tell you, on Wednesdays I do a show uh, on another network uh, with another friend, and it's called Moms Across America. So this kind of like struck a chord, and unfortunately I never did get your book to review, so I'm doing everything off the top of my head here. So forgive me if I sound a little loopy loop, but uh, there are uh, there there are people rising up that normally sit there in the background, and they they say, all right, fine, the world is fine, it's always going to be the way it is, but something happens, something ticks them off, they see something wrong, and they find the courage to step forward and do something. Um, I can think of example after example throughout uh, my life. Um, where something like that has happened, and uh, you write a book about it, and you picked out 12 women. Tell us about the women and why you chose who you chose. So the 12 women, super moms, that I chose, uh, first, of course, they had to be mothers. I wanted a group that was spanning America, north, south, east, west. I wanted a range in socioeconomic, religious, racial, and party backgrounds. I would say at least 50, maybe 60% of the moms in my book uh, are Democrats. And that's, I, I chose specifically super moms that had activated, that had done something heroic, brave, and life-changing. All right. So I picked out a couple of them, and one happens to be an actress, um, I've seen her face, but I didn't know who she was, and I'm probably going to mispronounce her name, Samir Armstrong. Uh, tell us about You're her and home. why you <laughs> – oh, good. <laughs> don't, don't try to pronounce my mom's maiden name, which was Delavecchia. Don't even try to spell it. <laughs> I'm doing fine. <laughs> so I chose right, so Samara Armstrong. Yeah. yeah. I chose Samara because here is an actress who could – easily stay out of politics and certainly out of a, a political landscape that is off of the left's narrative, that is not following the left's narrative. And this mother rose up and she fought like hell. She ended up leaving Hollywood, uh, moving to Arizona, running for mayor, and she also was instrumental in the fight to get the kids unmasked. Ducey had said he was going to leave it up to various people, you know, the, the school board districts, et cetera. But it, it wasn't happening. They were still masking these children despite the fact that there was uh, no reason for it. It had already been disproven. It wasn't blocking the transmission. It wasn't blocking getting the virus. We had already been there, done that, and we knew it wasn't working. So Samara Armstrong was pivotal in this fight uh, in, in standing strong for parental rights and for really just being brave and courageous and saying, I'm not going to take it anymore. I will not sacrifice my kids, and I do not co-parent with the government. You know, she got her feet wet when she was going for some roles that she was talking about. She said, hooray, you know, we're getting more diversity into Hollywood until she found out it actually backfired. So you had someone that was talented, that was perfect for a role, but because it wasn't a politically correct individual, they would lose it. 
and that's you I know think, what we get into. Were you right about she her? Just, yeah, she discusses that in her book, and you really see this metamorphosis. She's authentic. She's vulnerable, and she discusses how, you know, even even pertaining to this George Floyd video, she was outraged, and like so many other people, she had jumped to conclusions, and she had based it on this on this very small, uh, short span of time, and then, you know, after things started not adding up, um, after living through the Me Too movement, after getting a glimpse of what Hollywood does uh, vis-a-vis this whole climate stuff and how they all have private planes and live in these, you know, water-guzzling mega-mansions, you know, things started to not add up to Samara like so many other people. And she saw one of her very good friends get fired from The Mandalorian. And all of these other things for, for saying nothing, for just saying something that's common sense. So Samara, like so many of us, had just had enough. And, and by the way, I think this is very important to note. She is an artist. She's creative. You cannot be creative. You cannot be remotely artistic if you do not believe in the First Amendment, which is freedom of speech. If you are not willing to stand tall in that and to to stand truthfully in the First Amendment, you have no business calling yourself a creative. Well, one of my favorite sayings is you have the right to say whatever you want to say, no matter how dumb it is. But under the First Amendment, I will defend that right for you to be stupid to the death. (laughs) So that's my my viewpoint. I may not agree with you, but you have the right to say whatever you choose to say. Um, Right. But when you were mentioning the masks, that awoke a lot of mama bears. Now, I've been running a tea party, believe it or not, it's still active since 2009. Mm. And when wokeism started to hit some of the schools and it hit the local Catholic school, which floored me, um, a lot of moms and dads came to me like, what do we do? And that was where homeschooling was starting to really take off. And I found them some people to get in touch with, and I said, get together. I don't know. I, I wasn't blessed with children, but I do stay active in knowing what's going on. And I do show up at school board meetings because that's my tax dollar. Um, but I was able to point them in uh, different areas. And from these people became more active in their community because they saw that someone was out there that was willing to work with them and i think that's what the moms are seeing that there are voices out there it's just a matter of finding who is out there that can help you on your path and send you on your way and it's it's a great thing to watch well i think we have another uh, let me just say like the 12 moms that i attack woke from different angles and that's one of the criteria for being included One of the mothers, since you're speaking about homeschooling, is Kimberly Fletcher. She founded Moms for America. She gets into homeschooling, I mean, the ins and the outs of it. Um, She has seven children, and she was one one of the first people who I'd ever even heard of to do homeschooling. Now, here's the thing that your listeners need to be aware of. The state really decides the homeschooling curriculum, and what we are seeing is a spike in homeschooling numbers. Why is that? Because... The federal government has intervened in, in what is the state's business, in education. They have no business being in education. It's become big ed. 
And as a result of pushing this woke agenda, which is sexually exploiting children and uh, focusing on racism and political activism like climate, abortion, ESG, you know, all of this stuff, what's happening is a lot of people are pulling out their kids and homeschooling them. So what do you think, what do your listeners think is going to happen once government gets wind (laughs) that so many more people have joined homeschooling? Mm. Well, you're going to find uh, places like the state of here, South Carolina, uh, we're encouraging the dollar to follow the student. Florida has done it. South Carolina has done it. Other states are doing it. So once the dollar follows the student, then it's just a matter of saying, all right, federal government, how are you going to handle this one now? They'll find another way. But I don't know if you saw on TV last night, uh, the NEA uh, convention they had, and I swear this woman was rabid. The unions are afraid because the more homeschooling, the more charter schools you see, uh, the more religious uh, schools that open up, the NEA has no toehold in there. They're going to lose their power and position, and they're scared. And that's, I think, where we're going to find our next fight coming from the NEA, not so much from the federal government, but from the NEA. Well, it's funny you say that. Do you know America's largest teachers union (laughs) has made required reading for this summer a book called Gender Queer? This is as two-thirds of our nation's children are below fourth-grade level proficient in reading. So I would say to your listeners, the panacea, the remedy for this is Supermoms Activated. 12 Profiles of Hero Moms Leading the American Revival, because in this book, not only do these moms talk about what activated them, they talk about what is coming and it's not good, and they provide a blueprint for you to get involved. You said something else that's critical. You as a taxpayer have every right to go to a school board meeting. It's only because of COVID that the rules of school boards and voting have have suddenly disappeared. You know what I mean? School boards are supposed to be open to the public, but because they were put on Zoom or shut down and closed, all of these nefarious things were happening in private. And, you know, they were cutting off the mics of moms. One of the moms I have in the book is Oscar Nomani, who is a case before the United States Supreme Court to ban race, uh, racism from determining admission in K through 12 school and if she wins it will set precedent well you know you mentioned school boards because i go uh, to the county council to the school board meeting um and when they sit there there there, there's (laughs) a couple of individuals that go oh the eyes start to roll and it was to one point when i was addressing them uh there was some snickering going on from uh, members of the school board and others had their heads buried Mm -hmm. in their smart devices and I stopped, and I turned around to the school superintendent. I apologized to him. At first I said to them, how dare you? How dare you treat anyone in this room with disrespect when they're up here speaking? How dare you? And then how dare any of the school board members for not chastising them and not paying attention to the speaker? And if you did chastise them, I thank you, and you have our support. Then I turned around to the superintendent. I apologize. We voted this board in. We will vote this board out. And that sent a powerful message. And that's what we have to do. Yeah. We have to let them know we're not going to put up with their bull crap. 
And I've gone to County Council. I've challenged them on the face mask. I've even went into the hospital where my husband was going for a test for an operation before he passed away. And I was evicted from the hospital because I physically and medically cannot wear a mask. I turned around, challenged the hospital director and chief surgeon. And within 24 hours, that policy was rescinded. County Council, a week later, wanted to put a mask mandate into the county. I stood before them, told them the story, and there was no mask mandate. So we have a voice. You don't have to just be a mom. You have to be someone who just cares and sees something wrong and wants to correct it. A hundred percent. I agree with that. The super moms, super grandmothers, super grandfathers, super taxpayer. I mean, we are funding our own demise. This country, we have not only a right, it's our duty to speak up. It's our duty to get involved. It's our duty to safeguard this country and protect the American ethos. Well, um, you have also here, well, you were talking about education advocate, and I pulled up and now this one, I know I'm going to mispronounce. Yaya Tin Chu? Did I get that Yatin one wrong? Chu. Yatin Yatin Chu. Chu. Okay. All right. And she's so got a, Yatin... a really impressive res- resume. Yeah. she's. Uh, I'm telling you, these 12 moms are power hitters. They are, they are just, I, I'm telling you, they're the fire. They are the match that lit that prairie fire. Uh, Yatin Chu is co-founder of Asian Wave Alliance. She's one of the moms that helped me put together the coalition of independent and Democrat moms for Moms for Lee when Lee Zeldin was running against Kathy Hochul for governor of New York. Um, and I will say this, even though he lost, we won the, the pro-parental rights one and we have four additional seats and we secured the majority so we really have to recognize that democrats and independents do not like this craziness either it is really a very loud fringe minority that has hijacked this country um and they have intentionally i shouldn't even say they've hijacked this country they have been allowed and used by the biden administration to so discord and so chaos because it is convenient and profitable for the Biden administration. But the majority of Americans do not agree with what's happening. It's an amazing thing. Um, we recently had the Supreme Court ruling overturning affirmative action. Um, Correct. This is a great, great thing to do where now – I just forgot what the words were I wanted to use. Uh, we see now we can do this not just on the college levels, but in businesses and in the lower education levels also. Where in New York State, uh, people that were highly gifted were not being allowed places in gifted schools because they were the wrong race. And we're seeing that being overturned now, too, aren't we? Well, very funny you say that. So the Supreme Court did rule on that case. They ruled against, they struck down affirmative action. It was the Harvard versus the Asian uh, case that you're referring to. And right now in New York City, I just heard an article on this, it is, it, it is sheer lunacy. What happened was is 
as Mayor de Blasio, our former disgraced Mayor de Blasio, was leaving. He left as a parting gift a a, a carve-out. He set aside $1.8 billion, that's B, billion dollars, to give to exclusively black and brown people that failed, failed a teacher's test. Again, this is a two-thirds of our nation's children are not at grade level proficient for math and reading, presumably educated by teachers that pass the teacher's test. So now we have this ruling from the Supreme Court, which you just brought up, that it struck down affirmative action. Mayor Adams, his administration, did nothing to thwart this egregious payout rewarding failure to only black and brown people that failed the teacher's test. This is disgusting. It's uh, such a, a slap in the face to anyone that's worked hard to pass the test. And really, the left is basically saying black people cannot take a test. They're not capable of taking a test. So this is where we are in 2023, where we are with Democrat rulers who do not want to follow the law and who want to continue to push affirmative action and backdoor reparations. Well, you know, I, I have a couple of friends that if you turned around and said to them, simply because of your skin color, you're going to be too stupid to pass this test, man, you would have had a cat fight on your hand. And the assumption that you could think that someone has a lower intellect based upon their skin color is one of the most bigoted right. things that you could ever do. And yet we are called the fascists, the bigots, the homophobe, and whatever else they want names they call at us. But we had yeah. uh, Herman Cain Herman had a great never saying. I to that. No, Herman Cain always said. I to that. Well, ahead, hang on a second, Curtis. Hang on a second, because what Herman Cain said is that when you ever debate someone on the other side, you'll find that they will sin. When they're losing, they will switch the subject. When they know they're still losing after they switch the subject, they'll ignore the facts. And when they can't ignore the facts because you won't let up, they will name call you. So once, Jacqueline, they start name calling us, we know we won, right? I don't know. I mean, look, I get called names all the time. Um, I, I, I think that the travesty in it is that these names actually used to mean something. And now, quite frankly, I don't know anyone that cares. <laughs> Do you care if you're called a racist? Do you care if you're called an anti-Semite? Do you care if you're called a misogynist? Do you care if you're called a transphobe? I mean, these people are crazy. Um, they cast these aspersions all the time. Uh, they're meaningless at this point, And that's the sad part because they they shouldn't be you know it's disgusting to be racist it's disgusting to be anti-semitic it's disgusting to be uh these horrible things a nazi and yet the left just willy-nilly you know, firstly it shows that they wrote, don't even know what these words mean um mm-hmm. you know everyone's a nazi do they even know what nazis did i mean do they have any clue what nazis did how many, six, over six million Jews were killed. Calling President Trump, who has he killed? I mean, these words are so watered down and diluted. And it's either intentional or because, you know, it's either intentional or they just do not know history. And both things are terrible. Yes. Now, Curtis, you had a comment or a question? 
Yeah, I was going to say, I really never subscribed to affirmative action because, you know, there was an old saying in the Asian world when it came to the um, Japanese and the Chinese, the Chinese were the sick man of Asia. And I feel like the black community has become the sick sick man of um, America because it seemed like, you know, in some people's minds, and I'm talking about the left, black blacks can't do anything unless unless they have government's help. And um I, I I just don't I don't subscribe to that. I think we should, you know, be like Martin Luther King. You know, we should judge a person by their character, not by the color of their skin. And I think we would be better, you know, better off if we went that route. You know, they always talk about Martin Luther King during Black History Month, but they really don't subscribe to his his ideas or principles. And and <laughs> that's the irony of it all to me. I mean, the left, I don't know who the left cares about. They They certainly do not care about black people. They certainly don't care about women. They certainly don't care about moms. They don't care about kids. Uh, I don't know who I, – I can't think of one group that they help. I, I really genuinely – maybe famous celebrities in Hollywood, I, I don't know. Um, maybe I, – I don't know. I don't know. It's, I don't know whose life has gotten better under the Biden administration. I mean, you can pinpoint a couple of elite people – uh, maybe John Kerry, maybe Hunter Biden. Um, but, you know, as far as groups and swaths of people, I mean, who is doing better? The economy is terrible. Uh, drugs are a crisis like we've never seen. The homeless crisis is, is beyond what we could even imagine. Um, crime is through the roof. The general feeling is terrible. So I don't know. Who, who's benefiting from any of this? Biden. Biden and his cronies. Yeah. They put him in there. That, that's right. what it is. And we've got to recognize it for what it is. Um, one of the people you do mention, I wanted to bring her up especially, uh, Azra Nomani, yeah. um, who has launched the Muslim reform movement. Now, we did a show on this, oh, good Lord, more than 10 years ago about the Muslim reform movement uh, that was slowly coming through. Um, Dr. Zudi Jasser I had on, and my question was, under um, uh, conservative Islam or radical Islam, uh, if you attempt to change the Muslim, Muslim faith, you become an apostate, and therefore you, f- you fall underneath a threat. That you may be attacked, you possibly killed because you now are an apostate. Uh, so, she has been strong in her stance and has testified with Peter King in explaining about the radicalization of Islam. She's even insisted at at, uh, at praying inside the male only mosque. And this is a very very courageous woman, and my hat goes up to her. She is freaking amazing and she's the one that actually brought the case that has the case that is part of the case excuse me that's before the supreme court regarding not allowing race to play a part in admissions in k-12 school this is what she's attached to she is 
a warrior. She has uh, she was one of the first people to quote unquote storm the school boards. They cut off her mic, and she, you know, her story is riveting. And you see how she was always a fighter, um, and how various events shaped the fight, and how she she connects the dots between Muslim radicalism and CRT, critical race theory, and exactly what's happening now and why America cannot bow down to critical race theory, uh, CRT. It, it really, I have to say, the parents that I've spoken to, many of them, amazingly, were okay with the vaccines and the masks. For them, the death knell was CRT in the schools, this critical race theory, this obsession with making black people seem like losers and victims, making white people's people seem like oppressors, and making Asians seem irrelevant. And the reason why was because they saw the dumbing down of the educational system. They saw grades get thrown out the window. They saw absence uh, not counted. They saw civil disobedience in the classroom that went unattended. Um, They saw no homework, the removal of classics, and really a subpar and embarrassing education. Unfortunately, that's been going on for decades, and it it, it used to be where you learned reading, writing, arithmetic, and they taught you skills that when you walked out that door and graduated, you can function in society. You can actually get a job. But in today's society, uh, heaven forbid you ask them to get a job because they'll be triggered. Heaven forbid you turn around and say they can't have something for, well, I'm sorry, I happen to own it, so you can't take it away from me. They get triggered. If you address them with the wrong pronoun, they get triggered. You're not teaching them the basic skills they need to function in society. And we're losing generations of kids because of this. Yeah. No, we, we absolutely are. We're creating babies. We're creating monsters. Uh, when I say we, it's this educational complex that we fund. We fund it. And children are turning against parents. McCarthy style. This is exactly as Kimberly Fletcher, Moms for America, explains in her chapter. Uh, she connects the dots. This is what Mao did. This is what Hitler did. This is what Lenin did, Stalin did. Um, this is, look, what America is doing now is boring and plagiarism. We have seen this movie before. This is not even an original idea, okay? They are trying to steal and capture and hijack the youth and they are trying to turn them against their parents and make them foot soldiers of the left woke ideology. Oh, it is exceeding in many cases, and families are splitting apart. I've seen it in my own family. Uh, heaven forbid, uh, you know, I talk to one half of my family in a normal tone of voice, and next thing I know I'm being called all different names. And these are people I love dearly. <laughs> And I'm like, well, what did I say or do to deserve that? Well, you're a Trump supporter, or you're, you believe in the Tea Party, or, or heaven forbid, um, you believe in, in pro-choice. I mean, pro-life, not pro-choice. You, know, you get slammed because 
you, you believe in something in your core values. You still love the family member as much as you can. But it used to be crazy Uncle Joe used to sit down to dinner with you and you still loved him anyway, no matter what crazy thing he said. But families are being split up because it's now politically incorrect to think the way we do. Heaven forbid. Yeah. I mean, yes, it is. Um, it is. But this should not take away from parents or taxpayers speaking up. What happens is is that the minority has a very loud voice, and the majority was quiet for too long. The majority needs to get louder. Yeah, it's one of the speeches I give whenever I address large groups, and that we are the majority and silent no longer. Your book is called Super Moms Activated, and they can find it up on Amazon and any other good bookstore selling. And I hope I do get a copy because <laughs> I'd like to read the rest of them. And uh, one day you and I can talk about the way I threw off the shackles of, uh, you're just another female. You have no voice. <laughs> and I did it at a young age. I am. And exactly. still doing it. I will send you. A, yes, I will send you a copy. I'm so grateful to be on this show. Um, and yeah, you're, you're, please, listeners, please. You know, we have to support the First Amendment. We have to support conservative voices. We have to support non-wacko voices. Otherwise, the only voices that you are going to hear and your children are going to be forced to read are radical books from radical authors. So please, you know. Please don't just buy my book. Buy other conservative books. Um, let's make sure that children and families have an alternative. And my book, Super Moms Activated, 12 Profiles of Hero Moms Leading the American Revival, you can find it on Amazon. And it's a great gift for a mom who feels bereft, like she has no group. She doesn't know what to do. She wants to do something. This will educate you. This will explain to you why it started, where it came from, and where it's going. And the most important thing, it will give you a blueprint to get involved in a small or a big way. Absolutely. Well, Jacqueline, it has been a pleasure having you on. I'm sorry we missed you last week, but I'm glad you made it this week. And I look forward to getting the book. Thank you so much, and you are going to get the book. (laughs) And I want to know what you (laughs) after you've read it. Well, God bless for the work you do. You take care. Thank you. Have a great day. Bye. You too. All right, Jacqueline Toberoff, check out her book, Super Moms Activated, and Amazon and all other good bookstores. Welcome back to the show. She had such a brief uh, visit with us last week. I'm glad she agreed to come back on. Dr. Miriam Grossman, and she is the author of the book, Lost in Trans Nation, a Child Psychic. Jesus, my mouth just went backwards. Psychiatrist's Guide Out of the Madness. See, you make me nervous, Dr. Grossman. See what happens to me? <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, so many people do that. And, and, it, and it's kind of an interesting thing. But I thought that was a great introduction, Annie, and I'm happy to be back with you. See, it's a great follow-up after Jacqueline because she's got super moms activated and talking about what the school system has been doing to our kids, what society's been doing to our kids. But you honed down, especially on the trans nation, this this butchering of generations of our children that is now going on. And um, last time we spoke, I was slightly upset because I had gotten a text message in reference to a member of my family that is in the midst of doing a transition 
Now, he is a young man. He's no longer a child. But I thought back in things that have been in my life, and I also have another friend who did it when he was in the late 50s and 60s. And it's a whole different thing back then, and he's now in his 80s, uh, to do that compared to what they're doing to our children. And this you address in your book in depth. And you give us the history, which is what we were talking about when you were here before. And I want to mention that uh, I'm sorry we didn't get to do the interview with the other show that I go on uh, with Dan Perkins and Vicki Tompkins called Moms Across America. But we're going to get you back. We're going to get you to do that and plug your book everywhere we can. Um, oh, thank you, Annie. Well, you know, uh, in your book, you talk about herd mentality. And uh, as I said, I had noticed growing up that uh, girls and the cliques, kids make cliques. You know, it's the in crowd, that crowd, this crowd. These are the potheads. Uh, these are the uh, jocks. You know, these are the pretty girls. You know, there are cliques. And kids, they're young. They want attention. They want love. They want someone to recognize them. And they look for these cliques for guidance. And lo and behold, if you don't follow what everyone else is doing, then you're out. And this herd mentality is hurting our children. Well, Annie, yeah, what you're talking about is a social contagion. Um, and, you know, of course we've seen this forever among especially young people and especially among teen girls. So we know that there's such a thing as social contagion, which is when feelings and behaviors and beliefs um, within friend groups and of course those friend groups can include online friends that your kid may meet and uh, this is a part of what's going on right now and why there's been such an explosion of uh, young people complaining you know that they're not comfortable with their physical bodies so uh, you know you mentioned that you had an acquaintance who uh, a man who began living as a woman in his 50s. And we've always known uh, in psychiatry that there are individuals who have a condition, a debilitating condition of feeling this intense discomfort with their sex. And uh, up until very recently, we knew that they presented basically two different populations. Um, I mean, this is a bit of an oversimplification, but I think it's fair. The two populations were, one, um, this group of middle-aged men who, um, who are heterosexual, by and large. Um, they marry, they have kids, and then in middle age, uh, and after years of cross-dressing, which they enjoy for various reasons, they make a decision to medicalize into uh, live the rest of their lives appearing as women. So that's, that's and the, those are mostly men. Um, not all, but mostly. The other population that we've always been aware of is little, little children, two, three, or five years old, who come to their parents consistently day in and day out. Um, and they say, you know, I, I, I want to I, I be a boy. I, I have a girl's body. But, but I feel that I'm a boy, uh, or I feel that I'm a girl. Um, and, and these are also mostly boys, majority of boys. And these are the Jazz Jennings of the world, if you're familiar with Jazz Jennings. 
Now, the thing is that we have a totally new group of people who, who are now coming into our offices and complaining that they have the wrong sex body. So it's not the middle-aged men, and it's not the little kids. It's uh, teenagers or pre-teenagers, kids that are just are entering their teen years, and they're mostly girls. Uh, there are lots of, gr- of boys as well, but on the whole, they're mostly girls. And they're girls and boys who never before complained about being boys and girls. This is something that happened rather suddenly, their parents report. And uh, it, it, there's been, there was a, a large, there was a study of these families that came out in 2018 that I talk about in the book. And it indicated that this, this new group, this new demographic, um, are kids that also have a lot of pre-existing mental health issues. So a large percentage are on the autism spectrum. They may have extreme anxiety, depression. They may have a history of cutting themselves. They may have ADHD and any number of other conditions uh, that, 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 that pre-existed this gender dysphoria, gender dysphoria being the technical name for the discomfort that you have with your body, with being a boy or a girl, a man or a woman. Now, um, the problem is, Annie, that uh, the, the treatment of these kids in this country is to lump them together with the other groups that have gender dysphoria and to not recognize that this is an altogether different group. Now, before I get into that, though, I didn't say something important about the younger kids. Those young kids that are yearning to be the opposite sex, we know that if we just follow them and allow them to go through a normal puberty, that the vast majority, between 60 and over 90% of them, are going to get over it. And they're going to reach uh, a sense of complete acceptance with their bodies. A lot of them are gay or lesbian, but they're no longer wanting to be the opposite sex. Now, that is, that's of huge importance, as you might expect. That means that their gender dysphoria was temporary. And instead of, with this new group of kids, instead of looking at them and saying, you know, let's examine this. This certainly may be a temporary identity, we just need to give them time and help them with, you know, support them and give them therapy and their family's therapy if needed and help them to just get into adulthood and this whole thing just may resolve. So instead of doing that, which, by the way, is what they're doing in many countries in Europe and Scandinavia, instead of doing that, we are putting them on a, uh, an assembly line toward... Uh, uh, hormones that are going to stop their puberties, their normal healthy puberties, and then give them the puberty of the opposite sex, and then some of them will go on to uh, surgeries as well. Now, this 
so-called gender-affirming treatment is going to leave many people permanently disfigured and sometimes uh, uh, sterilized, unable to have biological children. So you see, this is why I wrote the book, because I have talked to hundreds of parents who are in this situation with their kids, and I'm urging them to trust their gut because they know their child best and to not take their child to a gender clinic because in the gender clinic, they're going, at least in this country, they're going to put the child behind the wheel in the driver's seat and let the child make the self-diagnosis and make decisions that are going to be the biggest decisions of their lives, which is well, insane. You know, it is completely insane because you know, children are not allowed to drive vehicles. They're not allowed to smoke cigarettes or drink alcohol. And you don't put dangerous instruments into a child's hands for fear that they're going to hurt themselves. But the most dangerous instrument you can hand a child is to give in to whatever their current demand is at the moment. And that, that's exactly what they're doing because some of these children just don't understand that about XY and XX chromosomes. They don't understand about why you have genitals the way you are because your chromosomes are the way you are. They don't understand that because they're told there's gender and then there's sex. Well, that's correct. I don't see yes. how you can... I don't see how you can unlock the two of them together unless you're talking about sexual play, sexual intercourse. That's a completely different type of sex. But I'm sorry. Uh, I was born a biologically this way, and yet in your book you hear time and time again that I was assigned this gender at birth. And the response was you wrote that, no, God assigns it. And that's what people well, fail to understand. Well, you know, that's the, I mean, I'm, I'm giving parents the biology that they need to know in order to um, make sure that their kids are not sucked into this um, belief system. And it is a belief system. You don't need to be a PhD. The book is not written for physicians. It's written for regular moms and dads. And what you're saying is correct, that, um, Sex is established at conception. So the, the moment that life begins, the moment that the egg and the sperm unite, that is the beginning of a new life that's going to either be male or female. Uh, I mean, there are extremely rare conditions uh, that, that have a mixture, you could say. Uh, they have chromosomal abnormalities or other conditions going on. But that doesn't mean every single person, even if they are so-called intersex, um, every single person's reproductive system is organized around either cr uh, producing eggs or sperm. There's only eggs or sperm. There's no spectrum. There's no, uh, you know, 57 choices. Um, this is all a part of a belief system that is being presented as facts. You see, that's the problem. These, even the medical organizations, well, especially the medical and psychiatric organizations, are actually presenting these, this belief system, this bizarre belief system, that is saying basically that it's healthy to be disembodied. It's healthy to feel something that's not what you actually are. 
Okay, that's, that's what they're telling the kids. We don't want our kids to be disembodied, for heaven's sake. We want our kids to be completely embodied in their real bodies and feel completely comfortable. So, so yes, just getting back to the, um, you know, male and female being established at conception and not randomly assigned at birth. But you see, that's the phrase that we see and hear over and over again, including my organization, the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, the American Academy of Pediatrics, which your pediatrician is going to turn to them. Okay, your doctor turns to their professional organizations for help. Doctors are very busy. We don't have time to go explore what all the research says about a given subject. So we are taught in medical school and in residency that if we have to find out more information about some condition that our patient may have, what do we do? We go to our professional organization. So if you have a pediatrician, she or he is going to be turning to the American Academy of Pediatrics. The thing is, Annie, that the American Academy of Pediatrics has been completely uh, hijacked by activists, gender activists, and uh, they put out statements, policy statements, and, and, and other, other things that indicate that, 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 that this whole belief system is valid. And they're presenting it as if there's a consensus of all the 67,000 members of the American Academy of Pediatrics. Nothing could be further from the truth. Okay, so I explain in the book how there are pediatricians and endocrinologists and psychiatrists that try to get into their organizations, uh, you know, the bureaucracy, the committees, the annual meetings, um, to object to this belief system being, you know, being established and being presented as truth uh, when there is no medical data, there's no, uh, uh, there's no scientific uh, uh, foundation for this idea that a person could be born in the wrong body unless, uh, 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 nonetheless, it's being presented to doctors, to parents, and to kids as being uh, established and, and, and scientifically true. We have our um, Dr. Admiral Rachel Levine from Health and Human Services standing up and saying, this is the, the only solution, this is the best thing that you can do for your child is to medically, uh, socially and medically transition them. Now, that is, that is not correct. That is false. And that's, a, that's wrong for Admiral Levine to be saying that to our parents. And I talk more about Admiral Levine in my book. Um, oh, yes, you do. <laughs> I wanna, yes. I, I want to point out to your listeners that last week there was a very important um, an op-ed, an opinion piece, in the, published in the Wall Street Journal. And that was a letter that was signed by 21 experts from nine different countries outside the U.S., and that letter essentially said to our gender medical establishment here in the U.S., it basically said, what the heck are you doing to your young people? There is no medical evidence that this path of medical uh, interventions, the blockers, the cross-sex hormones, and the surgeries in minors 
is going to benefit them in the long term. What these kids need is psychotherapy and to get off the Internet. Well, actually, they didn't say that, but I, I'm saying that. <laughs> yes. So, you know, it's a, it's a very noteworthy event when 21 doctors will sign a letter uh, uh, saying that what other doctors are doing in another country what these large medical organizations are doing. Well, they were writing the endocrine society. The endocrinologists are the doctors who, uh, you know, study the, the hormonal systems in the body and they prescribe medications to deal with abnormalities of the hormonal system. And by the way, gender dysphoria, uh, uh, people with gender dysphoria have no physical abnormality. There's no blood test or scan or, x-ray or anything that we can find that's abnormal, you know, in their bodies. It is a disorder in the psyche. It's a disorder in their, in their emotions, in their emotional life. Let's put it that way. So this, this op-ed letter in the Wall Street Journal from last week was a huge development. Uh, and I wish I could see some response from the organizations and from Admiral Levine, but as usual, you know, it's just ignored. Because oh, it's not politically correct. It doesn't follow their agenda. And you hit on, as you were talking, about the three different uh, psychic uh, contagion that is in our society now, that now running through the general population is one. The political aspect, two, if you don't follow and toe the line, if you don't agree with me, you're, trans, you're, you're homophobic, transphobic, you're a bigot, you're this, you're that. Uh, you're now going to be cancel cultured. Um, so you get cowed. And the other is the medical clinical, where they're allowing a child who does not have the mental capacity to make an adult decision to make an adult decision and then treating the adults as they were the children. Well, I'm empowering parents to fight this. And... You know, that's really my whole life right now. I, I, I wrote this book with my heart and soul, and I, I've just seen so much suffering, Annie, um, that I can barely stand it. You know, girls, teenage girls and young women going through menopause, young women who had their breasts removed and now want to be able to nurse, um, Men who had their genitals removed have been castrated, can't have biological children, no longer have a penis. I, I really had no choice but to, to do something, and what I did is I wrote this book. It is a very powerful book, and at times it will have you cry because the stories you tell are intimate they're personal, and they deal with real people and the damage that uh, has been done to not just the child, but everyone else around that child and that child's future. And the last time you were on the show, I made the observation is that, well, because we're saying pro-choice and trying to preserve the life of that child before it's born, we've, we've won that war basically. It's now a state's rights to decide. However... They said, well, we lost that, so let's go through Planned Parenthood and then help promote the transgender ideal 
And that way we can then sterilize these kids so if we couldn't get them in the womb, we're going to prevent them from producing children on the other end. And, oh, by the way, we get the up chance of having close to half of them committing suicide. So that's another problem off our hands. It's a sick society. Well, Annie, Annie, um, you mentioned Planned Parenthood, and they – some of those branches of Planned Parenthood are handing out hormones like candy. And I tell stories in the book of, of, there's a story of a woman, and this is not just a one, one-off time. This is happening all over the place. A woman who walked into a Planned Parenthood and asked for testosterone, and not only was she given it on that day, no exploration of what is this about? How long have you been feeling like this? What other things are going on with you? Not only that, but when the Planned Parenthood uh, staff member wanted to give her, I think it was 25 milligrams, she said, uh, this girl said, well, no, I, I'd like a higher dose because 25, I don't think that's going to do it for me. I have very high estrogen because I have large breasts and large hips. So I think I need more testosterone than that. And so, this Planned Parenthood person, I don't know what their training was, whether it was a nurse practitioner or somebody else, asked the patient, well, how much do you want to take? And she said, 100 milligrams. And she got 100 milligrams on that day. On that day, she got 100. Whatever she asked for, she got. So, um, you know, I, I don't... You know, aside from writing this book and coming on every possible media show that I can, I don't know what else I can do over here. I am screaming from the rooftops. There are other doctors who are also screaming. Not enough. Not that many. Um, And I want, I, I just want to encourage you and everyone that's listening to please, this is a medical scandal. And we're going to look back on it at some point. And people want to feel that they did something to fight this. Because it's going to be very obvious sooner or later that this was a very dark period in our history. Well, I've had a couple of questions. because As these people are are prescribing these hormones for children, uh, doesn't the FDA state that, you know, you can only prescribe these things for certain things to people of a certain age. Aren't they actually going against medical guidelines set for by the approval of that drug? Well, the way it works is that, you see, in the FDA, yeah, the FDA does approve drugs for certain purposes, but the problem is that it takes the drug company many years and I think about a billion dollars, I read that somewhere, in order to get FDA approval for something um, because it requires a lot of studies and a lot of time. And so there is such a thing as off-label use, which means that you're using a medication for something that doesn't have FDA approval. And that's actually quite common in medicine to use a medication that doesn't have FDA approval. I mean, of course, it's better to have the FDA approval, but doctors don't always count on that. But what is outrageous is to to be giving these young people, they're not all children, they're teenagers, they might be 
16. I think in the state of Oregon, it might be 15 that they can get these hormones without parental consent. In some states, it's older, but it doesn't matter. Even if you're 18 or 20, I would say at any age that an individual who, who is that uncomfortable with their biology and with their bodies, that they actually want to take these um, very strong medications that are going to have serious side effects, lifelong side effects, that they, they should, you know, that the doctors need to just slow down and take their time and, and, and figure out what's going on with this person. Now, I tell stories in the book of people that were actually suicidal on the day that they had their mastectomy, and the surgeon still did the procedure. Yeah, I remember reading those. And you're suicidal and you're going to go underneath the knife. You know, common sense would say, well, wait a minute, maybe this is not a good idea to do this procedure. Let's step back. Let's talk about this. See what we can do to help you first to make Mm -hmm. the correct decision for yourself. And instead of doing that, they go ahead, knowing that the person said they're suicidal, only then helps to promote that person to be even more suicidal. Because you tell about the horrors of the scarring on the chest and everything. And I don't want to get too graphic about a lot of the things you do cover in the book. But it is horrifying for a woman to finally find themselves without a chest and with the horrible scarring. You know, I'm going to mention her name, actually, Laura Becker, because Laura is a very extraordinary and articulate young woman who has, this is the woman that I mentioned a minute ago who was suicidal and told her surgeon that she was on the day of the surgery. And she has now become a, one of the primary, most vocal uh, detransitioner activists. So detransitioner, just to explain, are the people who have been through uh, affirming, so, quote-unquote, affirming care. They took the hormones. They did some of the surgery, like Laura was on testosterone, and she had a bilateral mastectomy. And now she's probably, I think she's in her mid-20s, and she recognized after all this was done to her that what she actually had was PTSD, complex PTSD, from a lot of the trauma that she went through earlier in her life. And now she is back to living as a woman, happily living as a woman, and speaking out against this whole uh, gender-affirming care and what's being done to, to young people and their families. Laura Becker, she has a, um, she has a what's it called, a, um, a blog, uh, a substack, sorry, she has a Substack, so your listeners, I would encourage them to go and, and she's also on YouTube. Um, listen to her story. Listen, watch this young woman talk about what was done to her. So that's one of the many stories that I tell. And the bottom line is that doctors, doctors are forgetting their oath to do no harm, and doctors are instead, uh, well, how should I put it? They're just blindly listening to their uh, medical associations, and they are also uh, watching their bank accounts uh, grow. Swell up. Yeah, yeah. You know, I wanted to ask you, um, because a lot of people refer to 
WPATH, the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, and they have a huge hand in setting policy and standards of care, don't they? They sure do, and I do have a whole chapter about them as well. Most people haven't heard of WPATH, but they are a very powerful worldwide organization, and I explain in my book why they are really a, an, an advocacy group, not a medical association. They, they were at one time, could be considered a medical association, but that came to an end about, I don't know, 20, 25 years ago. And I explain why doctors who have had prominent positions in that organization have left, um, you know, to, to, to their credit, because they recognize that that organization has been taken over by activists and uh, they're the WPATH is the organization that writes the what they claim, what they call to be standards of care for individuals with gender dysphoria. But unfortunately, what they really are is just saying, uh, you know, these treatments should be given on demand to every person that wants them, no matter how old they are and no matter how many psychiatric issues that person may have. So WPATH, um, WPATH is a big problem. But those countries that I mentioned earlier, Sweden, Finland, Norway, Britain, and uh, medical groups also in France, New Zealand, and Australia are all uh, turning away from WPATH guidelines. And that's really what needs to happen here. Uh, but we're not there yet. So, no, because again, I, I, yeah. I, well, I was going to say, but I, I think you wrote also in the book that Biden outlawed non-affirming therapy. Now, you as a psychiatrist, what does that do to you and how you treat your patients? And are you th- are under the threat of being arrested? Uh, not arrested, Annie, but I, I do live with the possibility that my medical board can investigate me, which is not something that a doctor wants, of course. That's going to be permanently on my record. I could be investigated for, uh, instead of a knee-jerk affirmation of my patient's new identities as the opposite sex or neither sex or both, uh, uh yeah, I could be investigated for that because I'm supposed to just automatically affirm them, which I I do not do. So, yeah, it could lead to an investigation, theoretically. It could theoretically lead to losing my license. Uh, you know, but like I say in the book, I'm, I'm going to do what's right, and that is what I'm doing. It takes a lot of courage, and I commend you for that. And you write so well about so many things that most people don't understand about transgenderism, uh, who is behind it, who's pushing it, and how early our children are being indoctrinated into it. You know, look at Target alone. Um, yeah. But you also write about the gender, the, the, the link between uh, gender dysphoria and certain conditions such as autism. Uh, and these are people that are on the outskirts, the fringes of the in crowd, and you write also extensively about how they will then turn to an online presence. 
and whether or not that person is real or it's someone just grooming them, uh, they fall in lockstep and say, well, my friend online, and they're mm-hmm. going through that. And you also talk about one young girl that made such an intimate relationship with a person online that she couldn't make a decision on her own without her friend participating. And that's right. that, yeah. that proved to be very dangerous. Well, that's why one of the appendices that I have in the book um, is specifically uh, telling, instructing parents on how to get control of your child's Internet use. And I can't emphasize enough how important it is um, to do that and to know, you know, where, well, first of all, kids shouldn't have smartphones, but, you know, but, but if, you, you know, your kid's going to have access to the Internet uh, in, in different places. If it's not on their phone, it's going to be at school and elsewhere. That's why you need to know all about filters. You need to be on top of where it is that your kid is going when they're online, who they're talking to. Um, it, it, it's, it's, just, it's just a must. So this appendix, which is written by, uh, you know, an expert in this field, um, it, you know, walks parents through that process. And you know, I have other appendices, as I think that I might have mentioned already. There's an appendix about schools. There's an appendix about child protective services and, and how do parents need to know their rights. There's an appendix on basic biology. And then there's also um, a very interesting collection of advice, parent-to-parent advice, because what I did in this book is I surveyed um, parents who are going through this issue in their families right now, or maybe they did in the past, and I asked them, what advice would you give parents who haven't gone through it yet? And so I Mm. got responses from 500 parents in 17 different countries. Um, And actually the book is dedicated to them. You see in the beginning of the book that the dedication is to these parents, 500 parents. Yes. and, and what I want is to bring the advice of those parents. I mean, they know best. They've been there. They're there right now. They know best. Um, I want to bring that advice from those parents to the parents that have yet to ever go through this. And so that's, that's you know, what I do. Well, it's funny because as I've been reading your book, I've been running through my mind a conversation I may have with my family member. Uh, because when I look at the medical concerns that arise from these procedures, it frightens me. And, again, this is where an informed uh, decision cannot be made because they're not given the full scope and ramification of these surgeries, not just immediate relief, but what will happen to them, say, six months, a year, five, ten, even 20 years. We don't even know the full ramification 20 years down the road to these individuals. But you write very, very painful and heartbreaking stories time and again of medical procedures that seem so simple in the doctor's office, but when Mm. all is said and done, have horrific consequences. Well, I'll tell you something, Annie, and I'm going to have to get off in a minute. I'm sorry. But the only thing harder than reading the book is actually talking to the people who have lived, who are going through this. Um, And I think that, you know, I kind of wrote the book perhaps for selfish reasons, which was that getting it out of my system, everything that I've 
well, not everything. It was just a small part of, the, of what I've heard, but it helps to get it down on paper. And it helps me now to know that, that more and more people are going to be reading this and hearing about these truths, about what's really going on, and hopefully really making a difference and turning this around. I hope so, uh, because I hate to see these young lives being so destroyed and our future is is being also decimated. Now, that could be the next Albert Einstein out there, but it's being tossed in the garbage can. And so is the person that's going through it. They're being treated just as chattel. And it's it's a sad, sad thing. Well, but Dr. Um, I, I want to thank you so much, Annie, for having me on. Oh, it is our pleasure. And your book uh, is called Lost in Translation, A Child Psychiatrist Guide Out of the Madness. See, I got it right twice I said it correctly. Yeah. Annie, I'm going to say one more thing, which is um, there are a lot of scams on Amazon right now. Did I say this already? There's all these books that are – No. Uh, oh, I think I didn't. Um, that there no. are something like 13, 12 or 13 books on Amazon that are – that are bogus copies of my book. They say that they're, you know, paperback, which doesn't exist. They say that they're a guidebook, a summary, a workbook. No, 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 no. All those things are scams. So people, in order to get to the right book on Amazon, um, if they could please either uh, go to my website, which is miriamgrossmanmd.com, and then right there when you land on that website, um, you can you get a link to to the correct place on Amazon, and then or they can go on to Twitter, which is uh, at Miriam underscore Grossman, and they can get the link right there. Because I hate that people are buying the wrong book and getting. Someone told me that they ordered the book. They were so excited when it came. They opened it up. It was a book. It was the same cover. It was a book on office organization. All right. Well, wow. I'm changing the link. Right, I'm changing the link right now. So we've got Miriam MiriamGrossmanMD.com, correct? That's my website, MiriamGrossmanMD.com, yeah. Well, we've changed the link for you, so they will go directly to you. How's that? Okay. I yeah, am to please. perfect. Thank you so much. All right, much. and I look forward to you coming please? back on again. I do too. Could you send me a link when we're do- uh, when you have this all done? I'd love to have it. Absolutely, I definitely will. And God bless for the hard okay. work you do. We'll t- be talking to you soon. Thank you, Annie. <clears throat> Bye. All right, uh, Dr. Miriam Grossman, Grossman, Miriam Grossman, MD. dot com. And let me make sure that all this is all correct. And let me just make sure. Yep, Miriam Grossman. dot com. Okay. So the page has been updated, and we'll just save that right now. It is such an interesting interview, Curtis, and I'm sorry that uh, you couldn't stay with us much longer. Uh, But uh, we have about 15 minutes before our next guest, uh, Hannah from uh, Heritage Foundation, comes on. And, uh, man, you've got to really, truly do read the book. And I, I have four pages I wrote of notes uh, dealing with this subject, and like I said, it's it's given me a little insight uh, to uh, that I never had before. And she does describe the surgeries and everything else that goes on with it, and 
if if you were to know what your child would be going through the second you affirm them, instead of Brenda, you're Oliver, you would never let your child do that. You would you would seek help, and I think Miriam Grossman's book is a good starting point. You know, she has a couple of times where she writes an imaginary conversation going on between either a parent or someone else uh, and a child. And it, it's very, very enlightening. And it, it gives people an idea, and she coaches them through it. And it is a really good book for anyone you know who may be facing that situation. Or even just keep it on your bookshelf, because if, if it's not your kid that's going to come home, maybe it's your neighbors, maybe it's your relatives. And if you have it on hand, you can come to their side and say, hey, listen, let's sit down, let's talk, let's read the book together and see where we go from here. I mean... Yeah, just just to think, when when I came through the school system, I had to deal with things like math, history, English, (laughs) stuff like that, spelling, and I thought that was a lot to deal with, nothing compared to what these kids are dealing with today, with these social issues. No, no, and, you know... It is it is really, truly heartbreaking. I mean, it's one thing when it's an adult that makes an informed decision. They say, all right, fine, this is how my life's going to go. And, you know, if you, if you are out there, I'm not going to say anything bad. I'm just going to say, hey, listen, if you do have this dysphoria, seek psychological help first. See what's going on. And maybe there's something that happened to you in the past that you don't realize is bugging the crap out of you. And it's making you feel this way. Maybe you are suffering from PTSD or you're suffering from ADHD or any other symptom, uh, uh, psychological, uh, uh, I'm, I'm trying to find the right thing, a disturbance. Seek help. And if in the end you still come up with the same conclusion that you do want to change your gender, uh, fine, but then again, make a formed decision. Find out exactly what the procedure is, what you're facing, what are the rates of success on this, and if it's not successful, what are your alternatives? And can you undo it? You know, these are all questions you should ask. And I'm saying just, well, I'm like just the, please use caution. I'm just like the doctor, though. Huh? I don't believe children... Even young adults should be making decisions like that um, that could be permanent. I, I, I mean, I look at tattoos, you know, how people put certain names on their their arms or where, wherever they put things these days. <laughs> and then years later, they regret that stuff and some of that stuff can't be removed. You know, well, I mean, when it comes to... Oh, it can be, but it's extremely... It can be removed, but it's extremely painful and costly and scarring. Right. But what I'm what I'm getting at is these sex changes and things like that. A lot of that stuff is irreversible. And that no, it be is left to a irreversible. Child. It is. Yeah. It is you irreversible. Leave that to a child to make that decision. I mean, there and it are seems like situations they purposely just... want to bring. I think they purposely want to. Um, bring about a wedge between the parent and the child in these matters yeah, by not is. telling the parent. It is. It, it is a way to do that because then the child gets, uh, uh, um, oh, my goodness, words are failing me now. The child revolts, and the child will turn the back on the parents, and they'll go to their friend 
or the child will go to the school uh, teacher or nurse or the guidance counselor that told them, and they will turn to them. They will turn to their friends and turn their backs on their parents. And these are stories that are also in the book. And when it does come to detransitioning, you cannot undo what has been broken. You will never be able to replace what you've had taken away. You can then turn innocence. around, and if you were born, no, not the innocence, but if you were born a male, those sex organs are gone. You will never be able to have children. And if you do detransition, you'll never be what you once were, unfortunately. You'll never have children. You can live as a man and act as a man, but you will never feel yourself 100% whole. You can go through psychotherapy to help your mind to heal, but your body won't heal. And then there's the, the same thing with women. Once you remove those organs, they can never be replaced. And you'll hear in her book, she writes, the doctor says, well, what happens when they want the breast back? Oh, they just get implants. I'm sorry. Uh, silicone plastic implants will not replace breast tissue. That woman will never breastfeed. And she talks about in her book how important it is for the mother to breastfeed because the the baby, when it's born and placed on the mother's chest, it has hypersensitive smelling. And what they smell is the ambiotic fluid that is coming from the woman's breast. It's telling the child, here is comfort, here is food, here is mommy. And it becomes a bonding between the child and mother through that breast milk, which provides important nutrition, important uh, uh, things to uh, give you uh, vaccination against disease. It, it, it gives so many good health benefits to that child, helps them to develop better than one that is bottle-fed. And how do you bond with a child if you cannot breastfeed? Well, you do, but you don't have the same bond. And it's important. Plus, the child will not be as healthy as one that does breastfeed. Now, I'm not saying this is 100% for every single child. There are some anomalies, yes. But it is far better and far better for the bonding of child and mother. And But you take those away, you can have children, but you never have that joy of breastfeeding. To knowing that this child now is taking additional substance from you and becoming healthier and stronger and better. And loved. But these are all things that are in her book. And it is, it is heartbreaking. And, uh, it, and like I said, I have page upon page upon page of notes. And I'm sorry we didn't have her on longer. Uh, but uh, this is something we really have to deal with in our society. And maybe the first step would be going to our state legislatures and say, Hey, listen, in this state that we live in, can we pass legislation that any child under the age of, say, uh, any adult, because the human brain is not fully functioned to the age of 27, but say even 20, 25, any person that is looking to do a, a, a transgender, and wait a minute, we will not provide hormones or any other medical treatment outside of psychiatric treatment until a certain age unless there's a severe medical reason that the child, if they were born with both oh. sex organs or no sex organs or something like that, but 
Those, those again, are one when, in a thousand. Yeah, when I say um, innocence, I'm speaking more, say, um, just a child not having to deal with these issues, you know, growing up. Just let them, you know, be normal. I mean, I don't remember all this transgender um, things um, being an issue when I, went, you know, went through school. There were other things like maybe drugs at the worst, but it was really never about sexuality. Um, but today it seems like that's, that seems to be the emphasis, you know, being placed on these kids. You know, how you feel, you know, are you happy with your body or or do you feel that you're someone else other than, you know, who you've been told you are? Things like that. Somebody's bringing this to, to, this um, issue to these children. And I think they should just leave these kids alone and let them grow up um, what, you know, could be considered as normal as possible in this world today. But, but it's a billion-dollar industry. What are you going to do with Planned Parenthood if you take away a form of their income? What are you going to take away from the uh, National uh, Education Association, the NEA, the Teachers Union, if they can't teach and brainwash these children and make them more dependent upon them than they are upon their parents? What's going to happen to all these doctors that have these clinics that they're making money hand over fist? Oh, my goodness. Then they have to become legitimate doctors treating legitimate patients for legitimate reasons. They're not going to make as much money. You've got a multi-million dollar industry with also pharmaceutical companies, surgical uh, uh, establishments. You have a whole industry, clothing, uh, advertising, magazines, online presence. You're talking about big, big bucks. I would tell them... I would tell them the same thing government tells people um, who who work for the coal mining business that got shut down by the government or some other, you know, um, line of work that the government didn't like and they, they put them out of business. Government told them, go find another job, another career. That's what I would tell the same people. <laughs> well, you know, it's... Yeah, we have it also. Well, we have the first step going in the right direction because the House passed the uh, funding for the military, and they said they're not going to be funding uh, abortions, and they're not going to be funding transgender treatments and surgery operations. And yeah, it, it is a step in the right direction. You're joining the military to defend our nation. If you right. cannot be physically fit to do your duty, and if you're a transgender, I'm sorry, you still need constant medical treatment, even when you're out there in the field. And if you listen to some of the um, medical conditions people end up with after these surgeries, there's no way they would ever be physically fit to defend our nation. Being out in the field for 30, 60, 45 days, or heaven forbid, six months in an outpost with very little medical care, much less the, the specialized medical care that they would need, or access to the hormones and other medicines they would need. You can't have an active fighting military if you do wokeness. You can't do well, wokeness in the military. 
Have you ever thought of it this way? This agenda was placed um, purposely um, in the military because, after all, you know, it's a, a free way of getting that, that operation, which would cost them thousands of dollars as civilians. But, hey, if we can get the government to pay for it, you know, hey, we're in there, you know. We can get as many people in there to get these um, operations. You know, that, that's just another angle, look, you know, looking at it, you know, with that, that, that mindset of it's free, it's free, you know. That Go ahead. You, you've got guys... You got you got prisoners that are doing the very same thing. Hey, I'm in here. I'm doing my time, but in the interim, let's say I'm a, a transgender. I'm a man who's actually a woman gets transferred to a woman uh, uh, prison, and oh my goodness, rates of pregnancy just dropped up inside a woman's prison. Wonder how that happened. You have the assault in California by a kid who claimed he was transgender and using the women's bathrooms. He assaulted not one but two. Hey, if you can game the system, game the system, and that's what people are doing. Also, it is and a lose-lose situation for our nation. But it's they still game a lose-lose situation if we don't, as a nation, put our foot down and follow what Europe is starting to do, and realizing there is more harm being done than good. When the first transgender surgery was done. Back in the 1950s, the individual went through a lot of psychotherapy over a number of years. And then it was a slow, slow transition. Today, kids are doing it almost overnight. It's got, we've got to stop this because we are harming the children more than we're helping. And we've got our friend Hannah in on the, on the, uh, the, the, the studio. <coughs> Excuse me. Welcome back to Southern Sense, Hannah. And how are you today? We got Hannah Davis from Heritage Foundation and the Daily Signal. What a crazy hey, world do we I'm have that we woke up to? Crazy, yeah, crazy world we woke up to. <laughs> well, I saw some excellent articles by some of your friends up on the Daily Signal, and I pulled them down. Uh, and Simon Hankinson wrote one. And he was talking about illegal immigration and saying it's like shoplifting, only making matters worse. It was an excellent, excellent uh, article on this one. And he broke it down very nicely. I mean, we've got these guys going out there. They're breaking into stores. And, oh, I'm sorry. If you steal below $1,000 in California, we're not going to prosecute you. You can keep the merchandise. Don't worry about it. We're just going to turn our back. This is exactly what Joe Biden's doing with illegal immigration. It is. Yeah, no, Simon's exactly right, and that is a great article he wrote. I mean, if you, if you um, incentivize people to do crime, they're going to do that. So we've, we've lowered the cost um, when it comes to, to stealing and also when it comes to entering our nation illegally. There's almost no ramifications for doing either, and it's a shame and anybody who has any type of criminal justice or law enforcement background would realize that that's just not the way to go. No, it's not. And unfortunately, I, we don't see any way out until we have a new uh, administration in on the uh, White House, and he ends up cleaning up, or she ends up cleaning up shop. And we've got to clean up shop from top uh, all the way down to the bottom. Yeah, we, we do. And I, I don't see there being 
not to fear monger, but I, I don't I I agree with you. I don't see much hope until something changes. Um and we we see that, you know, these left leaning cities and, and the senators and the governors they're all praised for such horrible policies like the one that Simon wrote about. And then people like Governor Abbott down there in Texas, he's being sued by the DOJ, he's being sued by you know, uh, canoe businesses and, and all that over some buoy walls. And so the people who are have the right to defend their state and the people who are p- implementing right-leaning policies are the ones who get the brunt of it all. And while the left-leaning people are, you know, they're praised for just such idiotic idiotic policies like the, the shoplifting one or the one, the policies that Biden puts in when it comes to the border. You know, heaven forbid we have laws in place that we actually enforce. Heaven forbid. <laughs> but wait a minute. It's a law for thee, but not for me. So, in other words, um, the Biden administration can turn around and ignore any law it wants. You've got uh, Governor Abbott and other governors uh, along the border enforcing the law and looking how to defend their state. And because they are adhering to the law, their own government is suing them for doing what law is on the book. Does that Yeah, not even sense? their own government. Not at all. Not even their own government. But Mexico recently sent a diplomatic note to the governor, to the state of Texas, over the water boundary, uh, saying that they're going to be sending down inspectors, which I just thought was painfully ironic, because why don't you start inspecting the cartels or the root causes of mass illegal immigration in your own nation. But, no, they're going to be sending inspectors down, inspection teams, to um, the buoy system to see if any of the buoy is crossing into Mexican waters. And I just think, how, how hypocritical. You're, you're concerned if the buoy is crossing into, into Mexican territory, but you're not concerned that Mexican citizens are illegally crossing into to our nation. I just think it's, it's absolutely asinine. Um, Mexico has stated that they're worried that their people will drown while trying to cross the buoy barriers. And I'm thinking, I'm more worried about the man, what was it, a year ago? The um, the man who, who jumped in to save those migrants, and, and he, he drowned. Um, you know, anybody who's, who's making that perilous journey, they're, they're go- they might drown. And, and this buoy system is supposed to be a deterrence tool. And, and for Abbott to have put that up, rightfully so, he has the right to defend his state. He has the right to defend um, the property of his state, including his citizens. To put that up and then be sued by the DOJ, be sued by a kayak and canoe business, and now having Mexico send diplomatic notes over to him, it's just it's absolutely insane. Every day I wake up and I see something else with immigration, and I wanted to speak about this canoe thing last week because I knew it was only going to get worse, and I'm glad I waited till this week because it's just every day there's something new about it. Well, uh, tell us what is going on, because this is something I did not see or catch. So edify me. Hit me with it. Yes. So <laughs> so um, uh, Governor Greg Abbott down in Texas, he he spent money on about a 1,000-foot system of buoy wall. And if you've ever seen um, those big orange balls that um, are on power lines that keep airplanes and helicopters away, it looks like that. Yeah. They look like that, but they're they're very close to one another, and they're buoys. They they bounce and they float in the water, and it's a long system of them, and it's used as the de- a deterrence tool for those who are crossing the Rio Grande. He's also putting up barbed wire, which Mexico is upset about, on the shores of the Rio Grande on the Texas side. Um, and so what it's supposed to do, it's supposed to deter people from crossing, and if they are dead set on crossing, they'll need to find another way to do it. It won't be on Texas Texan land, and um, – He's spent taxpayers' money to do this, and 
because taxpayers' money were spent to, to build the wall, but it's just currently rusting in, on private property for over two years now. So we're not getting anywhere with that. But he thought, I could use this. We see people drowning all the time. We see people crossing. He implemented it, and now he's being sued by the kayak and canoe business. Apparently, that's it's a Texas-run business. But I'm telling you now, I'd rather there be me, you know, kayaking through buoys than migrants, you know. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't see how this kayak and canoe business is actually making that much money with the current border crisis as it is, unless, unless the migrants are paying them. Um, and so, exactly. and now they're, yeah, and now they're, they're being sued by the DOJ saying it's somehow against some kind of law and they're, you know, Mexico's sending the diplomatic notes over saying, hey, we're sending inspection teams. They're going to come and check up on these, uh, uh, on these buoy wall systems and see if they're in any way floating in our waters. You know, there's, they're, they're concerned over water boundary treaties from the, the 70s. And it's, it's just absolutely insane that the one person who stands up for his people and his state, you know, he, he gets such backlash. And it's, it's, it's trifold. You know, you're getting it from the private company, you're getting it from the DOJ, and you're getting it from Mexico. And it's just, it's just absolutely insane that he actually had to go to that, that point to put up a buoy wall system. I can't imagine the science and the time and the money that went behind it for it to just get shut down so quickly. But they're still floating out there, and um, anybody who's going to cross sensibly wouldn't go the way of that. <laughs> now you mentioned the border wall sitting on property. Virginia Allen wrote mm-hmm. an excellent article about the Russell family, their ranch in yeah. New Mexico near the border with Mexico. Tell us what is going on there, and what has happened to them, and why is that stuff still sitting there? Yeah, that stuff's still sitting there because uh, back in 21, early in January 2021, when Biden took office, you know, he put out a proclamation and he said, quote, unquote, roughly paraphrase here, it's a waste of money and that, you know, taxpayers um, shouldn't be made to pay or put any more money than they already had into a border wall system, um, which I think is painfully ironic because taxpayers are certainly paying for these migrant schools and their health care and driver's license, et cetera. But uh, as long as we have an open border, you know, Biden's happy. But, you know, the Russell family, uh, Virginia does a great job helping us out in the border shop. She writes a lot. She's an investigative journalist for Daily Signal. And she wrote about this family who their personal ranch, their their privately owned property has had this unused wall materials just sitting and rusting on their land for over two years now. I think uh, the man said he heard that. Um, it's going to be taken away and used to scrap metal. I mean, if any other company ever operated that way, if any company ever operated as the uh, the current administration does our government, they would be out of business, you know, within a couple months. But but not our government because, you know, it's taxpayer funded and that stuff is going to rust and, and be hauled off and it is what it is. And this is the same family that's had, you know, their pickups stolen at gunpoints by migrants, their cattle stolen by migrants. Um, it's just absolutely insane they've had to deal with their personal property being broken into it's it's a shame and you know they've had that land for for years and they've only seen it go down in value recently and it's because of the biden administration yeah they've been there since 1918 and i'm wondering if they can turn around and say this is abandoned property uh i can sell the scrap metal for myself and put some money in my pocket and or, or use it to erect a wall around my property to keep the illegals out. I'm wondering what legal ramifications he has, if any. Yeah, you'll have to speak to Hans about that. He's the he's the legal guy, not me. <laughs> but no, I, I I can see I can see some people 
I, I remember there were some articles back then about Governor Abbott using the unused uh, Texas wall, and there were some kind of avenues that you were supposed to take to do it, um, and apparently it's not allowed because it's government property, even if it's sitting on your private property. Ah, see, I, I miss Hans von Spakowski. Just love saying his name. We got to get him back on the show. So give us a hand in getting him back on to us. Maybe you two can do a side by side. But uh, it, sure with thing. all this going on, uh, Biden ended up doubling down with everything going on right now because he now has this family reunification parole program, and it deals mm-hmm. with Colombia, El Salvador, and Guatemala and Honduras. I mean, is, mm-hmm. is there yeah. anything that is not beyond this man's domain to destroy? Yeah, it's a, it's a shell game. You know, we're, we were already dealing with the initial shell game where people were told to use the CBP-1 app and instead of going, you know, around a port of entry to come officially through a port of entry. That was the number one shell game. Now we're on to the second layer where people who are from, you know, if you're Cuban or you're Haitian or you're from Venezuela or Nicar- Nicaragua, you're able to join this family reunification parole program. And the numbers look like they've gone down over the past two months, but they haven't. And the only reason why they look like they've gone down is because these illegal aliens are flying directly to airports within, deeply within the interior of the nation. And so it looks like they didn't come through a, P, a point of entry, and it looks like they didn't go around one. And it's because they're flying in. And, and it's all apparently, quote, unquote, legal, because it's another one of Biden's, you know, lawful pathways. But just because Biden's created a, quote, unquote, lawful pathway doesn't mean that the person nor the pathway use, like the pathway nor the person using it is actually legal. And so it's, I, the, the American people deserve better. It's it's a horrible numbers game. It's to drive optics. It's to make it look like, you know, illegal immigration's down, but it's not. Not at all. No, he hasn't consulted you know, any state and local school boards or hospitals and on the cost of bringing these people in. Uh, they're saying it outweighs any cost incurred for schools and health care. And then they're pressuring Latin America to sign what is called the Los Angeles Declaration on Migration and Protection. What the heck is that mouthful? Yeah, that's basically, you know, it's, it's, forcing, it's forcing cities to adhere to the national standard of an open border. You know, we, we saw it with, with New York City. We saw how the, the sanctuary policies are catching up. To, to Adams, to Mayor Adams, and, you know, he recently put out flyers at the border. He had people from all the way from New York City go down to the border and put out flyers that say, please consider another city as you make your decision about where to settle in the U.S. And I'm thinking to myself, why don't you just reconsider your decision to make New York City and surrounding areas sanctuaries policy cities? Like, why do you – I mean, it's, it's caught up to them, and he's, he's starting to see the ramifications of it. And I think the, the federal government's noticing how he's, he's floundering and so they're going to go ahead and start targeting other big national sanctuary cities to say, hey, you can't do what he's starting to try and do. And it's a shame. <laughs> so now to assist with this new program, they're setting up what is called safe mobility offices. What the heck is a safe mobility office? And it's safe a website. Mobility office. Yes. Are you talking about the ones that, uh, south of the border? Uh, well, this was to uh, assist Guatemala, Costa Rica, and Colombia, and it's yeah. going to channel yeah. accelerated referee the teeth and backwards. Yeah, these are basically yeah, so secure I, I, mobility. I, these are secure mobility offices that. Yeah, these are secure mobility offices that are they intend to provide 
um, more information and streamline of applications for those who are interested in migrating legally, actually. Um, but the thing is, is people who are going to be using these are going to be circumnavigating around the people who are already in line legally. We've got a million plus some backlog. Um, and so it's, that's more of a legal immigration factor rather than illegal immigration. And I'm all for streamlining and making things easier and more understandable. But I also think that things like that money shouldn't be put into to those types of operations until we can build a border, until we can, you know, have – you know, uh, CBP officers with higher pay until people at the northern sectors, you know, there's not one CBP officer for every 50 miles until until there's, you know, we've got to work on the influx of mass illegal immigration before we start using taxpayers' money to, to work on legal immigration. Now, I do think that legal immigration is very important, but, you know, we've, we've got the elephant in the room right now. We shouldn't be focusing on the, on the mouse. <laughs> Absolutely. It's actually the small little tiny piece of cheese. The elephant just squashed it. Um, but uh, uh, Virginia also writes about, she's got excellent articles here, about the fentanyl production shifting from China to Mexico. And finally, the mm-hmm. House uh, panel is told about this. But I've been speaking about that for, that for the last couple of years, how China has now formed a, a partnership with um uh, oh, good Lord. I'm having, like, brain farts today. Uh, there's the uh, the tri- triangle down in South America between three countries that China, Hamas, and the drug dealers have joined in partnership to human traffic, to drug trade, to coyote, uh, illegal immigrants into the United States. And the House only just finally realizes what... I've been talking about for years. Right. Yeah, no, um Virginia, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if the woman ever sleeps. She puts out so many articles <laughs> every single day. I don't I don't know. I I oh, you could bottle her energy and sell it. That's for sure. But um I yeah, no. Um the, this, the, these triangle countries, you know, they've been doing this with the fentanyl production and, and Mexico and, you know, China, China makes the precursors. They ship them over to Mexico. Mexico says thank you. They take them. They facilitate whatever process it is to synthesize these precursor chemicals into what we would consider fentanyl or other type of laced opiates, and then they mass produce them and ship them across the nation, our nation and, and theirs, um, but they get bigger bucks for it here because we have a bigger crisis. And... Um, it's something, you know, I think I, – I, I wouldn't go so far to say that, you know, people w- weren't aware of it, but I think it's just taking – you have to beat the horse dead so many times. You know, you've, you've, you've got to beat it over people's heads, and I think that's what people are doing. You know, we've got this investigative panel in the House that, you know, is going across and, and thoroughly examining um, Mayorkas, Secretary Mayorkas's dereliction of duty. Um, and so we're actually in the second phase of that. They've already done a hearing – on Mayorkas's, you know, failure to do his job, and right now they're they're in the part where the second phase is about how the border crisis facilitates the illegal activities of the drug cartel. So we're going to start seeing uh, a few more articles, a lot more tweets, a lot more people recognizing the fact that um, it's all crisis by design. You know, I mean, we've got over I, the statistics are astounding. How many people die? from overdoses every single year in America because of the fentanyl crisis we have. And um, the only reason why it's so rampant is because we've got an open border and we've got China, China 
working directly with Mexico. And I don't, I, I wouldn't venture to say that Mexico has ulterior means or motives. I think it, they, the cartels directly see it as a way to make money, but China definitely sees it as a way that they can sit back. They don't have to engage with us directly, but they can watch us fall from within. And um, that's exactly what they want. That's exactly what they do when, you know, we've had over 33,000 Chinese nationals cross our border this fiscal year alone. I mean, it's nationwide. It's it's absolutely insane. We just had a Chinese migrant cross on a motorcycle. He thought he wasn't going to get arrested. Um, and <laughs> I, I, I don't know. We, we've got more reports coming out about it, but I assume he was probably trying to smuggle something. Um, this is this, the crisis. We're well past crisis level. You know, we've got over 3,000 apprehensions a day, over 2.3 million nationwide encounters, you know, and that's 1.7 million at the southern border and 132,000 at the northern border. I mean, we've got these Chinese nationals paying 15 to 30K to smugglers to get in. I mean, I think it's definitely in the grand design for China um, to sit back and watch us destroy ourselves from within. And, of course, they used, you know, of course they used someone who was territorially close to our country because it's the easiest way for them to be able to destroy us from within without having to actually come here. Um, and, you know, if any time we've ever tried to engage uh, the, the Chinese Communist Party about it or their government, they always say that we need to work on the fact that our people want so much fentanyl. And, and we say to them, you know, we, we never snap back too, too directly, but what we should be saying is that, well, they wouldn't be, there wouldn't be such a heightened demand if you would stop sending precursor chemicals to Mexico. And so it's all very nuanced and it's all, it's so delicate how we, how we deal with the Chinese Communist Party. But um, I do think we need to be a little bit firmer in our, in diplomatic settings about what we're going to do to stop it, because right now it's killing hundreds of thousands of people, a lot of them children, um, every year. I mean, the fact that it's the number one killer between people 18 to 45, I mean, it kills more people than, like, heart attacks, you know, more people than drowning, more people than a car car crash. I mean, that, and that's a huge gap, 18 to 45. Usually it's a lot more nuanced. You know, 18 to 22, it's going to be drug overdoses. 22 to 27, it's a car crash. It's, it used to be more nuanced, and now it's not. And it's definitely because the Chinese Communist Party is working directly with Mexico. And um, I'm actually really glad that we have a five-phase five hearing, and we're in phase two, which I think is one of the most important about how the illegal activities of the drug cartels are only amplified because of Biden's open border. I mean, we can blame it on China, we can blame it on Mexico, but at the end of the day, neither of them would be as fruitful as they are now if we didn't have an open border. Yeah, well, uh, Mark Green has been talking about that, and your friend, again, Virginia, uh, quotes him in her article about it on July 12th. Uh, after the dereliction duty, you talk about the border crisis facilitating illegal activities of drug cartels. And after that, he's going to go against uh, about the human cost of the border crisis. And that is, that's mm-hmm. huge, because you're not just talking about the cost to the illegal aliens coming, of course, but to Americans that have suffered at the hands of these illegal aliens coming, of course, the consequences that uh, no one is holding anyone responsible for. Uh, the human cost in, in now you have kids that can't even go to their gym class because that school is now housing illegal aliens uh, because it's a sanctuary city. What is the cost to those children, and what are they being exposed to, either in criminal elements or to health dangers? Uh, we've he- mm-hmm. seen a, a uprise of leprosy, uh, rubella, a lot of things that we conquered long ago that is now coming back in our nation. People are catching diseases that hadn't existed for decades, 
for some of them for a century, are returning. Uh, the financial cost, oh, geez. you got small towns being forced to take them in, and their budget doesn't allow for multiple uh, dual-language teachers. Uh, they may not be even have health care facilities enough to handle for them. There's a lot that the small towns and cities, as New York is finding out, cannot afford. And then the suspected fraud within the Department of Homeland Security. You know, right? Yeah, and and you, you, the human cost too. The biggest cost someone can give is their life. I mean, I, I, I anticipate that we're going to have a lot of mothers and fathers on the stand talking about how their child went to a party, and you know, whether right or wrong, the seventeen-year-old boy wanted to try some Adderall, and it happened to be laced with fentanyl, and he died. That's the biggest human cost I can think of, and those stories repeat every day. Local news, and local news will, will say it. You know, they'll have you know. 17-year-old boy dies, 16-year-old girl dies, that kind of thing. But the national news never mentions it like that. You know, they just say, um, you know, if it's ever mentioned, they'll do some kind of National Institute of Health Association says, you know, we've had this many deaths in, in one year. And they never say why, and they never say the ages, and they never say, you know, where these chemicals are coming from. They never say how cheap it is on the streets for children. They never say how how laced it is, you know. I mean, it's absolutely insane. And I, the financial cost, you're right. I mean, I wrote on New York and how they can't keep up. And, you know, their mayor is recognizing that. People are leaving. The mayor's grasping at straws, trying to sue other, other counties around him to take the migrants, you know. And um, my next piece is going to be I'm going to analyze Chicago and see how bad they've got it up there. You were talking about those diseases that are coming back. You're absolutely right. You know, Chicago makes these kids, you know, get multiple vaccines before they join up into the elementary, the public school system, um, or should I call it the, the government school system, but then, you know, they don't, yep. they don't make the migrant children. They don't make the migrant children, you know, produce any type of health department records from Mexico or Honduras or wherever they're from, and they certainly don't make them get vaccines because how are you going to make a child get a vaccine when you don't know what other vaccines they've had? And so our children, our, our citizens have to get all these vaccines, and, and, and these migrant children don't at all. And, and you're right, we've got mumps, we've got rubella coming back, um, it's absolutely insane, and then I'm 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 pretty I'm pretty excited for the last phase too the the suspected fraud because boy is there ever some fraud I mean I, oh. I'm still shocked that Secretary Mayorkas is in a position of power I mean he merits impeachment he merited impeachment months ago a year ago and it, it's only worse and worse I think recently you know he we had a hearing recently and they were talking about phase two which was, you know, the border crisis facilitating illegal activities. Um, but they were talking about the, di the different colored bracelets that, you know, people, the, the illegal aliens are wearing, and they correlate to different uh, smuggling organizations. And I remember the last time, or the time before the last, they had Mayorkas on the stand. He didn't know what those color-coded bracelets even represented. He didn't even know that that, that was a thing. I guess he just thought they were all wearing jewelry. Um, but mm. it, it's absolutely insane how he merits impeachment because he doesn't even understand just the simple concept of supply and demand, and he doesn't understand the concept, the the more nuanced concepts that the the cartels use and how industrial they are. They're not just these aren't mom and pop cartels. You know, they're making these are billion dollar businesses nation um, internationally, and they make so much money. They make millions and millions of dollars smuggling these these children. Um, he doesn't care that we lost 85,000 children. You know, they were smuggled. You know, Jessica Vaughn from the Center for Immigration Studies, she made a good point recently in a hearing, and she said it's harder to adopt a cat 
than it is to sponsor a child. And I completely agree with her. You know, there's no vetting. We've lost 85,000 children. When you ask Mayorkas about it, what the Department of Homeland Security is going to do, he goes, oh, well, that's the Department of Labor's issue. That's Health and Human Services' mm-hmm. issue. You know, he just pawns it off. And it, it's absolutely insane. It's absolutely insane. Um, I think deep down he just doesn't care, and the American people deserve better. Now, uh, there's two things I want to mention. Uh, Jessica Vaughn actually happens to be a neighbor of mine. She's actually over in the next town. <laughs> so I run into nice. her a lot. Uh, but uh, as you were mentioning China and the Mexican cartel and the pills being made in Mexico, who has the stamp for all our medications? China makes over 90% of our drugs over-the-counter and prescriptions here in the United States. How easy is it for them to make a fentanyl tablet to look like a baby aspirin or a Tylenol pill or an Ativan, something that seems so harmless? And when you hear about these fentanyl overdoses, these people don't know they're taking fentanyl, think they're taking something else. It should be not overdose. It should be a murder charge. I agree with you. I agree with you. I think the term overdose sometimes... You know, if, 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 it's a, if it's a fentanyl addict on the street and he took too much, then, you know, that's an overdose. He knew what he was doing. But if it's a kid or a baby or just a mom of four and she takes an aspirin and it happens to be, you know, laced, I mean, that's not an overdose. That's a murder charge. And I think the best way to mitigate things like that from ever happening, if uh, China ever wanted to be um, dabble in, in something like that directly, it's to let's domesticate our medicine production. Why are we outsourcing medicine? Why are we outsourcing you know, our jobs. Why are we outsourcing? I mean, the list can go on and on and on. I know Heritage, we, we got sick of it. We, we have such a, um, a pro-Americana uh, standpoint here. Um, recently, we decided to stop outsourcing for, like, you know, our staff ties or our, um, our laptops or, you know, just our paper. We, we decided to cut, you know, China out of the equation, and, and we're sourcing everything we ever use in office now domestically. And if small private companies start to do that, uh, it'll 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 catch like wildfire. It'll and I, I think um, it'll snowball. Yeah, it'll snowball. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, listen, I want to make a mention that you've got on Monday the thirty first. It's going to be the Heritage Foundation Catch and Release, and then what seminar? The people can go to heritage dot org. I do believe you said it was for free, and they can join in and be part of it and find out a lot of these interesting speakers you have and take and participate. Yes, it is free. You can sign up virtually or you can um, sign up for in person. If you come in person, we'll have a lunch reception. Um, it's going to feature our Andrew Arthur, he's the um, resident fellow uh, for and a former immigration judge. He works for the Center for Immigration Studies. We're going to have Don Rosenberg. He's the president for Victims of Illegal Alien Crimes, and we're going to have Tom Homan. Everybody loves Tom Homan. He's a visiting fellow here, and he's the former border security, uh, he's former ICE director. And it's going to be um, on July 31st, last day of, of July. So go ahead and sign up, and we'd love to have you guys. We'd love to have anybody listening right now, and we're going to talk about all the illegal aliens that have been released into the U.S. and all of, you know, the pushing two, two million gotaways um, and how, you know, everybody is at risk. Every, every state's a border state, and basically an open border is the same as no border at all. And I think it's going to be a really good panel. I think we're going to have a good showing. And anybody listening, um, please sign up virtually if you can't make it in person, but it's, it's going to be a good one, that's for sure. Yeah, it's only one hour from 11 to 12 Eastern Standard Time. Hannah, we're out of time. Thank you so much for joining us, and I look forward to seeing you next week again. And uh, if you see Hans, tell him I say hi. I miss him. 
(laughs) (laughs) Will do. Thanks for having me. I had a lot to say this week. Oh, that we did. That we did. God bless you for the work you do over there and everyone else, too. Take care. All right. Uh, Hannah Hannah Davis, check her out at the Daily Signal as well as Heritage.org. That's the end of the show we have for today, Curtis. Uh, We're going to be back next week. It looks like we have Janice Heisel, who covers the Trump beat Mm -hmm. for the Epic Times. She'll be joining us on Friday. She'll be with us at 2 o'clock. And then at 3 o'clock, we've got Mark Capscott, and at 3.30, we've got Hannah. So we've already got most of our lineup for next week, and we've got two slots left, and they're going to go like hotcakes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. want to thank everyone I'm for try joining to get, us. Um, Those are... I'm going to try to get somebody from Media Matters on. Okay. That sounds good. That sounds good. want to thank everyone that joined us on the uh, – Inside the studio, I saw a bunch of people calling in, but no one raised their hand to, to speak. Uh, up on Facebook, up on YouTube, we were live. Up on my homepage, we were live with the chat rooms open, which is Southern Sense. Put, just put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. And everyone, thank you for joining us, and we will be back next week. Same bat time, same bat station, and I'll leave you with Gary Pecorella and Save America. Until then, I say good night and God bless.
Oh, America. Oh, America.